0: <laughs> Talk motor, chat, moja. Hey, so long, everybody Ringo here go. Beautiful day in LA so,
3: Everybody, welcome to Talk More Talk, a solo Beatles video cast. We come to you every other Monday to talk about all things solo, and uh, once in a while—well, maybe more than once in a while—we talk some Beatles as well. And I am really excited about the show for tonight because we have a, I think a, a really fascinating topic that we've wanted to do for a long time, and we've got a couple of experts. With us tonight, who have a lot to say about this topic as well. So, uh, so really excited to get this show uh, going. So, uh, so before we uh, get this on the road, let me uh, introduce myself, my good friends that I'm lucky enough to uh, co-host this show with every other Monday, and our special guest. So, first of all, I'm Kid O'Toole. I'm the author of songs we were singing, guided tours to the Beatles' lesser-known tracks, Michael Jackson FAQ, All That's Left to Know About the King of Pop, Uh, and I also am the co-editor of Fandom and the Beatles, the act you've known for all these years, and the co-host of the uh, podcast Toppermost of the Poppermost, and with me as always are my good friends. Uh, You know him from his podcast slash videocast Two Legs, a Paul McCartney-centric uh broadcast tom hanyati hello tom my friend how are you
4: chit it's great to see you i'm doing great um you know my 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 city detroit was uh you know obviously heartbroken after uh, uh the loss of the lions but you know it's uh, it was a fun ride and uh, hopefully they'll get back again next year but till then I, we've got a wonderful topic, like you said, Kit. And I'm really wishing I had the book Leninology with me <laughs> on me right now. But unfortunately, it's in a storage in Arizona. But uh, as you can see, there's uh, Scott, he's got a copy right there. But fantastic book. And, you know, Chip and Scott, they're going to tell us how to get a copy of that book later. And I definitely recommend um, that book.
3: Absolutely. Absolutely. And I see Paul peering over your shoulder there. So he'll yep. he'll be with us in spirit. <laughs> For the show tonight, we also have the po- the host of the very popular YouTube channel Mean Mr. Mayo. Um, of course, we know he's not mean at all. He's a he's a <laughs> pussy cat. We all know him, love him. Uh, he's <laughs> uh, he the uh, great channel full of um, stuff about his uh adventures collecting uh beatles vinyl memorabilia uh also his adventures at the record store rants uh fab gab <laughs> you name it joe mayo hello joe oh
5: hello kit thank you so much and hello to everybody here and our two special guests looking forward to the show tonight
3: absolutely it'll it'll be a great one and uh also you know him. these uh um, just a mainstay of the Beatles community for many many years you know him from so many shows that i don't know how he gets any sleep uh things we said today uh his longtime uh syndicated show um oh uh, my god i'm blanking out on it
1: every little thing
3: <laughs> my god i had a brain fart i'm getting That's old perfect. uh sorry about that and <laughs> and he is a great um uh, YouTube channel Ken Michaels Radio. We've a uh, number of us have been on it before. You never know who's going to turn up on that channel. Ken Michaels. Hello, Ken.
1: Hello, Kit. Hi, Joe and Tom. Tom, great to have your voice back. Yes. <laughs> yes.
3: I know yeah. it's feeling.
1: I've lost my yeah. voice sometimes in certain interviews. So, thank you. I've been there.
3: Yeah. All right. Yes, indeed. Hello, Yes, indeed. And now I am very pleased to uh, introduce our two very special guests. Uh, one of them has been on our show many times before, and we're thrilled to have him back. And another is a first-time guest on our show, so we're thrilled to have him here. They are the co-hosts of the book that uh, Scott just held up a moment ago, um, the book Leninology. It's actually the first in a series and uh, Algee It's uh, Strange Days Indeed, A Scrapbook of Madness, which is uh, a day-by-day account of uh, John Lennon and Yoko Ono's artistic and personal partnership from 1968 to 1980. And uh, boy, is this going to come in handy for our topic tonight, <laughs> uh, to say the least. So I'm really thrilled to welcome back uh, Chip Mattinger and uh, welcome for the first time, Scott Riley. Welcome both of you. Thanks,
2: yeah thanks so much it's really great to have us uh be here tonight appreciate it
3: oh thank you so much well as i said our topic tonight is going to be the lost weekend uh and its impact musically creatively on john um and we all we talked about before the show tonight we have a lot to say about this so and i'm sure all of you watching out there do too Uh, Before we get to that, though, as always, we've got news, news, news. So, Ken, what have you got for us?
1: More news than you expected.
3: Mm -hmm. Uh,
1: We'll start with the news that the historic last song of the Beatles, Now and Then, is about to be featured in the new movie, Argyle, Mm -hmm. directed by Matthew Vaughn. Giles Martin actually approached Vaughn to see if he'd like to use a Beatle track in the film. And Vaughn thought that that would be difficult because it would be expensive. Joss suggested using Now and Then, which, as it turned out, fit the romantic angle in the movie. And when he played the song for Vaughn, he was blown away by it. And when he put it into the film as a test, they found that they didn't have to make an edit. It fit everything. Vaughn said it was as if Lennon had watched the movie and written the song for us. It's got lyrics that encompass the central relationship. Argyle opens in theaters in just a few days, January 31st. The new March issue of Mojo magazine is out with Paul McCartney on the front cover. In an exclusive interview, he talks movingly about Denny Lane, Linda, Wings, and their masterpiece, Span on the Run at 50. As they describe it, the haters, the muggers, the health scare, the Beatles, and more in this issue. A big event is happening at the Great Hall Auditorium at Monmouth University in New Jersey on February the 3rd called Get Back to 1964. The Beatles Come to America. It's a 60th anniversary symposium in celebration of the Beatles' arrival in America with many of our colleagues appearing as special guests, including Ken Womack, Bruce Spicer, Rob Sheffield, Ken Campbell, Tom Franjon. Dennis Elsys, Jim Babjack of the Smithereens, and Glenn Burtnick and Bob Berger of the Weaklings, also May Pang and others, mm. will run from 9 to 5 p.m. that day. I don't know, kid, if you have a link for that, but I'll, I'll send it to you so we can put it in our description box sure. for anybody who wants to attend. Mm-hmm. Uh, the new animated short, War Is Over, inspired by the music of John and Yoko, is being nominated for an Oscar. Both Yoko and Sean are listed as producers. haven't seen the film yet. Would love to be able to comment about it. Um, Just recently, we heard the photo exhibit of Paul McCartney's pictures from his book, 1963 and 64, Eyes of the Storm, currently running through April 7th at the Chrysler Museum of Art in Norfolk, Virginia. Now we hear there'll be another exhibit of the same being held at the Brooklyn Museum in Brooklyn, New York, May 3rd through August 18th.
4: Ken, just to uh, add to that, um, to the the short film, be on the lookout for AMC theaters because sometimes they'll do a thing where they show all the short animated films, all the short documentary films, uh, stuff like that. So we may may have a chance to see uh, the film, but uh, AMC every year, they generally will do, uh, have a day or two where they show all the shorts uh, that are
1: nominated for an Academy Award. Oh, good. Thank you for saying that. I was thinking more trailers, you know, right. like before before a movie. But they right. show the entire animated yeah.
4: short. Yeah, they did. They, they show the entire short film or documentary animated. Yeah.
1: So. Okay. All right. Be on the lookout for that. Uh, about this photo exhibit, McCartney's photos they say serve as a personal and historical record, conveying the intensity of the Beatles' touring schedule as the group were swept from concerts to hotels to the road with rabid fans and paparazzi at their feet. With special thanks from one of our listeners, J.D. Mack, we learned that there will be a Beatles mini exhibit in celebration of the 60th anniversary of their arrival in America happening at the National Capital Radio and Television Museum located in Bowie, Maryland, spelled like Bowie, like David Bowie, but it's pronounced Bowie. And that's not far from Washington, D.C., As many fans have heard this story of a teenage girl, Marsha Albert, having heard about the Beatles from a news story on CBS TV's Evening News, she urged DJ Carol James from her local Top 40 station, WWDC, to play the Beatles, but they didn't have any of their records since Capitol hadn't marketed them yet. But James got a friend of his who worked for British Overseas Airways Corporation to bring back a 45 copy of I Want to Hold Your Hand on his next trip to England. And James played the song, after which the phones lit up like crazy, with fans wanting to hear more. James corresponded with the Beatles and got them to agree to do an interview when they came to the U.S. And on the morning that the Beatles did their first ever concert at D.C. Stadium on February 11th, James got to interview them. The actual microphone that was used for that interview was donated for this exhibit. And fans can watch a video of the interview on a restored 1955 television set. A few passings we have to mention. First, there's the death of Leon Wilds, the uh, New York immigration lawyer who exposed the efforts of the Nixon administration to deport John Lennon on political grounds. Uh, Leon defended John from 1972 to 1975, finally resulting in a federal appeals court that vindicated his case. Lenin's anti-war activism and criticism of Nixon had motivated a legally baseless campaign against John, using a 1968 marijuana possession conviction in London as a reason to have him deported. Nixon's administration was most concerned about the president's re-election chances, with Lenin's influence on younger voters, after the legal age for voting changed to 18. It is because of Leon Wilds that John got his green card. Leon also rallied a collection of letters and testimony from major figures in the arts, including Bob Dylan, Joan Baez, Leonard Bernstein, Jasper Johns, John Uptake, and others to help in the cause. Also in April of 1965, you might recall that John appeared on The Tomorrow Show with Tom Snyder and Leon Wilds was there to explain the case on that show. Ironically, there's a brand new book that has just been released called Leon Wilds, The Biography from Iconic Press and Leon Wilds was 90.
2: Wow wow.
1: Also we have to mention the death of Melanie uh, Mm. the American singer-songwriter that rose to fame in the early 70s where the hits Lay Down and her number one song Brand New Key. After having a few hit records in Europe one in France the other in the Netherlands she became one of only uh, one of the only solo women who performed at the Woodstock Festival in 1969. Her experience there is what uh, she wrote about in Lay Down, Candles in the in the Rain. Her biggest Beatle connection is that she appeared on stage with John and Yoko at the one to one benefit concert at New York's Madison Square Garden at the show's finale, singing the chorus to Give Peace a Chance, along with Stevie Wonder, Roberta Flack and Sha Nah. And you can find footage online with Melanie right next to John on stage singing the chorus. Mm-hmm. Melanie also covered a few Beatles songs including Any time at all we can work it out the long and winding Road and Rocky Raccoon Ooh. Wow. Melanie was 76. I know Joe you did something special on your channel about that yeah right?
5: I did a little tribute I met I was I was very happy that I got to meet her just nine months ago. At a convention, I got she's a very sweet lady, really, really nice.
1: Yeah, I got to see her in concert quite a while ago in Long Island. Um, in the evening, an evening concert, it was a free show at a high school. She sounded fantastic. I know she had um her son in the band with her bow and uh, very unique voice, very emotional voice, um, vocally. Very sad news to hear about her. A few more things. The February issue of Vanity Fair includes an article called When the Beatles Stormed America, I Was With Them from photographer Harry Benson. He tells that uh, the story of how he was a journalist for the Daily Express who had been given the assignment to cover the Beatles in Paris in January of 1964 and all that followed afterwards. He stayed with the group at the George V Hotel and he became, in his own words, not a fly on the wall, but a friend with a camera. He actually witnessed John and Paul composing I Feel Fine in the hotel room. Harry said he realized the group didn't reserve time to compose their songs. Many, in fact, were done on the fly. Wow. Bruce Spicer's series of books honoring Beatles albums will continue this year called The Hard Day's Night and More. It will cover the American albums for the soundtrack for A Hard Day's Night, also the Beatles' second album, and something new. And just like all the books in this series, it'll it'll include contributions from Bill King, Al Sussman, Pierce Hemmingson, and Frank Daniels. Don't forget the Band on the Run 50th Anniversary Edition comes out February the 2nd. And with thanks to Martin Quibble, he informed me today, uh, the second season of the podcast from McCartney, A Life in Lyrics, will debut on the perfect day, huh, February 7th. It will be available on uh, Pushkin.fm, also iHeartRadio and Spotify. Don't forget, the Grammy Awards are happening this Sunday. I know I mentioned in the last show, um, the Beatles are nominated once for Best Music Video for I'm Only Sleeping, which is a really creative, animated film that was done. I didn't say anything about Now and Then, and I thought to myself, you know, song came out in November. Yeah. November 3rd. So I'm figuring it probably was too late to qualify. Next year. It's probably going to be in next year, considering how important a song that was. Uh, Just a few more things. John Borak has been a guest on my YouTube channel several times. He's a contributing editor and writer for Goldmine Magazine, and recently wrote the book Beatles 100 100 Pivotal Moments in Beatle History. John is also a drummer, and one of the bands he's in is called Pop Dudes. They just released a digital EP of five songs that are a tribute to Denny Lane. All songs that Denny either sang or wrote or co-wrote during his time with Wings. The songs the group recorded include No Words, Spirits of Ancient Egypt," The Note You Never Wrote, Again and Again and Again, and Time to Hide. Uh, Also, I'll send you, Kit, a link for this too if you want to uh, purchase the EP, which is on Bandcamp. Our friend Fernando Perdomo has just released a new album of all instrumental covers of Beatles songs called Red is the Color, Songs of the Beatles. Fernando plays all the instruments on the album. You can purchase that disc on Bandcamp as well. And finally, uh, I mentioned this, I think the last show, there is a new uh, collection of Pete Ham demos called gwent gardens which i had previously said would only be released digitally but that has changed there will be an actual cd uh released on ynt music on february 23rd and it's now available for pre-order on amazon okay these are yeah. demos it's pete on piano pete on guitar no band behind him just him alone uh yeah. songs most of which were never released by badfinger Okay. And thanks to Tom Brennan uh, for that information.
4: Who said physical media is dying? Keep it coming.
6: Yeah, I agree. We're (laughs) keeping it alive. That's right. (laughs) (laughs) Single-handedly.
1: Okay, that's it. That's all I got.
3: All right. Thank you, Ken. Great stuff all right well now we're moving on to our main topic for tonight which is as i mentioned uh the lost weekend and uh, we've wanted to take a look at this for a while um to again talk about its role uh, in john's creativity his songwriting his producing um and you know we're we are going to look a bit at you know some of the events that happened, but not concentrating quite as much on that because, quite frankly, we all know a lot already. I'm sure many of you have seen May Pang's documentary uh, that came out, and and we've we've read a lot about it. But I think not as much attention has been paid about what effect this had on his music, and and you know, as I said, his his creativity and his artistic development. And I think that's, you know, what we'd like to explore tonight. And as I mentioned at the top, we have two guests that have, I think, a lot to say about uh, about that as well. I think we all do. Um, and so I think let's start off, um, and uh, we talked a little bit about this before the show, um, about when exactly we're considering the lost weekend, um, because generally, you know, the the conventional wisdom has been that it was an 18-month period um, that, uh, that happened, you know, starting um, in about, you know, the summer of 1973, when John and Yoko were beginning to have marital issues, and John and May Pang um, moved to L.A., And, you know, as we know, uh, John, you know, started uh, behaving badly, shall we say, and and fell into drugs and alcohol, but was productive. Um, You know, managed to record Walls and Bridges, um, the beginnings of the rock and roll album uh, in in LA, uh, produced Pussycats with um, Harry Nielsen. So it wasn't that he wasn't productive at all, that's for sure. Um, but by 1975, he, you know, returned to New York, got back together with Yoko, and that's that. But was that all there was? So let's start with you, Scott. You, you were saying at, uh, before we started the show, that you think that wasn't the entire Lost Weekend. What, how do you think, when do you think? that you, know, you think it really started. Yeah,
2: I mean, it's complicated because nobody ever lives their lives in you know easily identifiable chunks. You know Every day just kind of blends into one another. And so even though it's really easy to say, oh, The Lost Weekend was from September 1973 to February 1975, and we have those exact dates in our book, and you can look it up. That's when it was. But what I thought was really interesting, Kit, was when you said that tonight we're going to talk about the musical part of The Lost Weekend which is so interesting because it's no longer about the salacious stories and all that. Let's talk about the music. And one thing I really noticed as we were writing Leninology is when you start looking at John's life day by day by day, these problems went way, way back before September of 1973. Let me, let me try to frame this a little bit. Um, look at John's creativity from let's say September of 1969 to uh, September of 1971, like two full years, right? Oh my God, are you kidding me? Cold Turkey, Instant Karma, two plastic ono band albums, Imagine the Imagine movie, uh, the Fly album, um, Yoko's art uh exhibit at the Everson Museum. I mean, it was just one thing after another, and two masterpiece albums back to back within a few months of each other. He was unstoppable. Then we get to sort of the end of 1971, early 1972, and he still kind of got it going. You know, he's got this the elephant's memory, and sometime in New York City. And sometime in New York City was recorded in February and March. Then what? Then what? From March of 1972 to about July of 1973, so almost an entire year. What songs was John working on? He wasn't. He was completely dry. We have very little evidence of anything he was doing. Now, again, he was very, very busy producing the Elephant's Memory album, producing um, Approximately Infinite Universe, doing the one-to-one concerts. But none of that was new original stuff from him. And interestingly, you know, you would think, well, what was going on? You know, it, it was the immigration. You know, we were just talking about Leon Wilds. It was the whole Kyoko mess. Yeah. All of that got into his head. But here's the thing. Why didn't it get into Yoko's head? During that period, she recorded Approximately Infinite Universe, which was a double album. She started working on Feeling the Space, which could easily have been a double album. She had a single that was just for Japan. She cranked out more than four albums worth of material in this time span that John was doing nothing.
4: Mm -hmm. And plus be, you start to think plus kyoko yeah, right. being, being her daughter i mean
2: she had more of a reason to not be productive than than john mm-hmm. absolutely and maybe she was using that pain and trouble to be creative you know like john had done in the past but sure. for whatever reason he was dried up mm-hmm. now you, then you can say "Well, but what about mind games well here's the thing yoko had the studio booked, the musicians booked. I mean, everything was already set in stone. And John knew he had an album due contractually.
3: And mm-hmm. so I think,
2: correct me if, you're, if I'm wrong, Chip, but it feels like around June or July of 1973, he just kind of locked himself in a room in the Dakota and cranked out the album. That- um, he infamously described Walls and Bridges as being you know, the work of a semi-sick craftsman. I would argue that that's mind games, that he just cranked out mind games, got the studio, got the musicians, let's just get this over with. It's also interesting how quickly he worked, right? I mean, imagine it was recorded in a week and mixed in a week and it was done. Mind games was recorded in a week and mixed over like two months, you know I mean? It was just, he he didn't have that vision. He didn't have that idea of where he wanted to go and what he wanted to do. So I'm arguing that even long before he and May went to Los Angeles in September, he was already null and void as far as the creativity. It had left him at that point.
1: Scott, isn't it possible that during that year to a year and a
2: half um, that you're talking about that John wrote some of the material from Mind Games? Sure, absolutely. And in fact, a lot of Mind Games came from earlier material. I mean, Mind Games itself is you know, Make Love, Not War from 1970, Right. and uh uh free to people but yeah free to people but they were all kind of fragments that he had kind of lingering around which is again, kind of how he worked um but you know i we you know i don't know about that one i know i know you are here a lot of that stuff he just trying to try to gobble together so yeah it, it was it was piecemeal but i again Chip, correct me if i'm wrong about the demo tapes but it seems like piecemeal throughout the months well
6: like you said there were there were bits and pieces from late 1971 and then he he had said that for mind games he knew he had to go into the studio because everything was booked so for maybe two weeks before the sessions that's when he sat down and really had to crank out the material Mm.
3: Yeah. Now let me let me ask you, Chip. Um, you know, because another factor in this, of course, is the response to sometime in New York City. Because uh, as I was, you know, going back and and you know working out my questions and all for tonight, I came across some of his uh, you know interviews he did around the time of Mind Games, and you could really tell how the you know critical and commercial response to sometime in New York City, really affected him, And, you know, how how do you think, I mean, do you think that factored into his, you know, how do you think that factored into his out, you know, output at this point, um, you know, and maybe into mind games? Well,
6: I, I think that was a part of it, but there was also the search for Kyoko in there and that ongoing concern. Uh, there was the one-to-one concert that they got heavily involved in. So that kind of occupied him for uh, perhaps a month in prepping for that and going through the actual shows. Um, And they were kind of bouncing around the U S they were, you know, they took the trip out to California to, uh, to detox from Mm. uh, methadone. And it it was kind of a, a tumultuous year or period between sometime in New York city and mind games. So, you know there were several factors i think that contributed to that
3: yeah yeah and don't forget his legal the legal issues with the beatles true. Mm-hmm. true i mean there's there's that too so um so oh go ahead okay, go ahead ken yeah i was gonna call you, know, on you anyway so go ahead <laughs> i know
1: from um what gary van sayak has told me in the past there were plans for john to tour with elephant's memory so it's not like John was disinterested with the with his own music, but if it wasn't for the fact that he was constantly hounded with immigration problems and everything, then that could have possibly happened. Well, that's what killed the tour were the immigration issues.
6: Yeah, you know they they just didn't want to give them another reason to get tossed out of the country.
0: Mm-hmm.
5: <clears throat> C- can I interject something? Because <clears throat> something you know I've talked about this before. I don't know. To me, it, it sounds like, you know, when we're discussing the lost weekend quote, you know, we're talking about thinking of like, well, how how much was there a time where John was not as productive as usual or something early on? Like like Scott was saying. But I always think of, of course, The Lost Weekend is a Ray Moland movie, movie uh, about an alcoholic. And John coined the phrase My Lost Weekend. This was my he's the one that's. The one that decides when he was lost. I always wanted to cover that, and the way I look at it is, he always said. Even sometimes, he even added, you know, uh, the, the lost weekend, my lost weekend that, that lasted eighteen months. Like he adds that as long with it. So that's the period. Yeah. Now, if we want, I think he's referring to he felt lost, and it was a lost weekend because being without Yoko
0: mm-hmm.
5: is really, I think, what it cinched for him, right? And then you're talking about also, in addition to that. I guess the fact that he started really going crazy with the drinking and, you know, getting thrown up, being on a binge, hence the Lost Weekend title from the movie. But I mean, this is an interesting thing, too, to say, well, let's look outside the box and see if there's any period, as Scott was saying before that, it probably there's here's some periods where he kind of dried up or whatever. I don't think that's what the Lost Weekend really means, though. I don't think that's what John thought uh, when he discusses it. But, you know, still interesting. To mm-hmm. pursue as we're doing, but yeah. just wanted to to, to to make that point. You know that I always yeah. think, that I think John's he, the one that says he's lost. We he was like, you did all this, you did all these projects, though, John. You, he did all this, and May Pang's always, you know, bringing up, oh, was so busy, and he was with David Bowie and Elton John, and got together with Paul and Ringo. Yeah, but John felt lost, and mm-hmm. the songs on Walls and Bridges,
2: a lot of them say that, right? Well, I think that's interesting that trying to define what lost weekend is and you're absolutely right it was hundred percent john's phrase and so what did it really mean we're not quite sure but now now let's start blurring those lines a little bit right going from that sort of creative desert that i was just talking about to the actual physical separation right where he went to los angeles um so then we have to start thinking well what did he do creatively then let's say for the next six months um, well, obviously he recorded the rock and roll album with Phil Spector and Pussycats, but again, what was he doing? What songs was he writing during this time frame? Well, we've got Here We Go Again and Mucho Mungo. I don't know any John Lennon fan who would put those in their top 50, maybe, you know, mm-hmm. maybe the top 30 or so. Yeah. But um, so again, very sparse kind of stuff, put himself in the hands of Phil Spector, you know, not even running it creatively. Um, doing Pussycats only as an acknowledgement that I'm not doing anything, right? I mean, he literally said, I have to do something. I have to do something creative um, to get things going. And so, you know, we were talking about this creative desert where he was still doing things, but not really creating new music, even when he moved to L.A. And you talk about what a creative fertile period it was for him. I disagree. He didn't do anything when he was in LA. He had to move back to New York in the spring of 1974 to Mm -hmm. finally get to that point where he's working with Elton John, where he's working with David Bowie, where he's doing Walls and Bridges and actually creating that creativity that the apologists kind of say, oh, look how creative he was during this period. But again, in Los Angeles, nothing, just nothing in Los
3: Angeles. Okay, well, let's get to that rock and roll album, um, because that is always and you know we've talked about this a bit before in the show, but let's talk about it in terms of this period. you know, so now, okay, we've he's now in in uh, LA and decides now. we know part of the reason he decided to do that album was because of legal reasons, you know, we, we know that story. but you know, was there, you know, was there another reason why he decided to turn, you know, to, to go kind of backwards uh, at, at this point? Um, he said
5: he didn't want anything to do with production, right? Or anything. Right, yeah. just wanted yeah. to sing and did even more. That's even more like to what Scott's saying, maybe. He didn't want to do, yeah. do as much. Right? Yeah, He, he yeah. just
3: wanted
1: to be Ronnie
3: yeah, exactly. yeah. <laughs> oh good 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 call so yeah i wanted to to hand the reins over to to phil so and maybe some... maybe that
2: was an acknowledgement that his muse had left him he was not mm-hmm. writing any songs so why not do an album of, of rock and roll songs and and commercially at that time it made sense too He had that mm-hmm. whole kind of 50s revival again with american graffiti and uh sha-na-na know, yeah. Right. But I, excuse me. I remember John's
5: John saying though in one of the interviews he said, "I remember when I, I thought of it when it was a new idea, because because mm-hmm. yeah. all right. that stuff started. You know what you were saying, happy days and all that was after like seventy four, really. You know what? Mm-hmm. Uh, American Graffiti was seventy three, but yeah. yeah. I so he mm-hmm. thought it was a new kind of a new idea to go back in and by, and by
2: the time it came out, it was old
3: hat. So, <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah, right, because then it came out. Yeah. yeah. But uh Tom, I mean do you think that you know that that decision to do that do you think that you know that had any impact then on you know what do you think that refreshed No, I think he was, I
4: didn't think he was still in the right headspace really to I mean, I mean those. We know those sessions were were filled with uh, uh, probably not the best moment for John or for or Phil Spector, right? I mean, he took off with those tapes. So, um, you know, I you know, I I still think that that was probably like a lost period for him. I mean, that those were not good. Those were not good days for him.
3: Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. I mean, you know, but interestingly, though, years, you know, then when he went back to them, though, he ended up producing those sessions himself. Oh, he
4: had to. I mean, he had to. I mean, I mean, he was legally bound to finish that album.
3: Yeah. Yeah.
2: But what was interesting was that when he did finish them, that's when I feel he really got his muse back. He was the old John Lennon. And Mm -hmm. when he went back to rock and roll, he he did it in a week. Done. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Game over. After months of going round and round with Spectre.
1: it's kind of interesting if you listen to the original rock and roll album he still kept four recordings that phil Mm. Spector produced you know and you can easily tell which ones phil produced and which were just john but i'm just wondering you know was he very just not pleased with the other songs that phil Spector produced at that point
6: well he felt that they were not up to par he thought you know, because of what was going on in the studio during the recording process uh, that, you know, I think his most famous quote was that there were 27 musicians playing out of tune.
3: Yes. <laughs> I remember that quote.
6: So, so I think that has a lot to do with it. he definitely picked the four best tracks. I don't think there's any doubt about that. Mm. Um, uh, we We've seen the majority of them. We've seen all but two of them. And we don't even know if John had a lead
2: vocal on those or not. Well, and two of them went to other people. Uh, right. Dion right. did one of them. And was it Cher did the other one?
6: Cher and Harry Nielsen did a duet. Sharon Harry Nielsen. right. And they so, actually used the backing tracks from
1: John Sessions with Phil. So he could be in there someplace. Yeah. No. And I know from what May Pang has said, and Jay Bergen too, John did not like the recording of Angel Baby yes, at all. He said something similar to what you just said, Chip, that there was like 27 musicians out of tune there. Mm-hmm. But um, it's interesting. I want to ask Scott and Chip this because this is the same thing with Walls and Bridges. To me, John, someone like him was always creative. I can't imagine that everything that he wrote was in the space of a couple of weeks for an album. I I would have to think that Maybe some of the songs, some Walls and Bridges, he might have written while he was in L.A. I think I'd have to
6: go back and and take a look. But I think the majority of Walls and Bridges was starting around March of 74. Scott, does that sound
2: right? That sounds about right. Yeah, right at that transition period between leaving L.A. and going back to New York.
6: Right. They were working on yeah. move over. Miss L was one of them. And yeah. then once they got back to New York in July, there was whatever gets you through the night and surprise,
2: surprise. And um, so, yeah, I mean, it's really hard so, to. pinpoint. I mean, John, you know, we know he had uh, the uh, road to Marrakesh in 1968 and it didn't show up for three more years as a completely Mm -hmm. different song. So he always had these little fragments floating around in his head. It's very hard to pinpoint it. But I think Chip's right. I think the vast majority of uh, Walls and Bridges came in the spring of 74, probably mostly in New York. But yeah, they could easily have started in L.A. Do do we know how much input he had for the Pussycat album?
4: Did I mean did Harry bring all this material that came into that album? I know I think John did write one song for that album, but but did, was the, the material pretty much already uh written? Um did he did he you know how much of a, that work was in the studio? Do we know much about the recording of
6: that album? Yep. Uh it was tracked quickly as well. Uh, March, late March, April of 74. Um, I think there were a couple of cover versions on that. There was rock around the clock,
2: right? The last homesick dance blues. for me, right? Stop draining homesick blues. Yeah. yeah. So much of uh, "Mucho Mongo. black sales was a song that Harry had around from a movie that he had done the year mm-hmm. before. So there wasn't a whole lot of new stuff with Pussycats, Really? Right.
4: And, you- and how much,
2: Oh, go ahead. Go, go ahead. go ahead. No, go ahead. Ken. No. Um, I've always been curious about
1: Mucho Mungo and then it's a medley with Mount Elga. <laughs> Where did Mount Elga come from and how was it decided to make that a, a medley?
6: From what I've heard on, on the working tape, uh, the demo tape for, for Mucho Mungo, he and Harry were kind of batting things back and forth and Mount Elga was something that Harry came up with and and they just seemed to work together.
2: Yeah. Hmm. And Mucho manga wasn't really finished anyway, so why not?
6: Mm. If I remember, uh, John had said that he had finished it off with Phil, but the parts that Phil wrote were the ones that he hated the most. Right. So that's what didn't make it into the song.
2: Right. Interesting. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, so there we are again, you know, six months into this, you know, last weekend and all we got to show for it creatively is mucho mungo, and here we go again. Mm, say, you know he Vienna. did.
1: Good night Vienna.
2: Yeah,
1: I'm sorry, Ken. It was Good Night Vienna.
6: Well, Good Night Vienna was 74. I think you're maybe, perhaps thinking of I'm the greatest.
1: Yeah, I'm no, the greatest. Sessions in early. Well,
2: 74 is part of that period. Yeah, I'm not not the part when he was in Los Angeles. Goodnight Vienna came after he had reached. Yes, they recorded it in Los Angeles, but it was created when he had gone back to New York. Okay. Chip, the uh, the John demo of Goodnight Vienna was that part of the Pussycat sessions? Is that where he recorded that? It was part of the Pussycat's mixing and sweetening
6: sessions. Once in they New York, had taken operations. John said things were getting too crazy in L.A., so he took all the Pussycat tapes. Back to New York City to finish the album. And yes. that's when the that's when the uh Goodnight Vienna demo comes from. Gotcha.
3: Trying to find the comment here. Uh Farrell McNulty, yeah. Um mentioned uh and and you guys were a step ahead of me because I wanted to bring up Pussycats. Um yeah it said uh he says a better album uh than which gets credit um I I've you know, I've I've found that it's. It, I think it would have had possibilities, uh, but you know, of course, Harry Nelson's voice by that time was not in wonderful shape, uh, to say the least. And I I just felt like, you know, you could uh, let's just say it really sounded like it was recorded in a party atmosphere. Uh, <laughs> you know, well,
4: well, what do you what do you see under the table on the cover of the album? Yeah, exactly. <laughs>
3: that kind of says it all doesn't it yeah yeah it does (laughs) (laughs) i mean you know and of course during uh, i think it was the early days of that session you had uh, toot in a store in 74 right um oh yeah it's
5: a waste of time (laughs) which is
3: the most disappointing bootleg ever (laughs) buying that and thinking oh my god stevie wonder paul mccartney John Lennon, who else was in the uh well, I guess Harry Nielsen, I guess, was in those, and I forgot who else. I'm like, this is going to be epic.
2: <laughs> epically bad.
3: Yeah, epically bad. I mean, exactly. But um, but yeah, I mean, so that's that's of course another part of uh of the lost weekend. And and it does I just think it, you know, really was I'm, I'm not too Well, that was a missed opportunity, but but pussy cats was kind of a missed opportunity because I feel like there were some moments. There, that could have been, um, you know, but
4: I mean, we're not far removed from Son of Schnelson and Nelson, right, but... right? I mean, these are great albums, mm-hmm. um,
3: exactly. I mean, and even Tom... something like Let's Mucho Mongo uh... had some moments. I mean, right. you know, it could have been fun, I and, and
5: I think Chip's got an autographed uh album there. Of... Oh, oh, yes. Well, I
6: wanted to bounce back to Tom's comment about <laughs> what's going on under the table. And Harry signed this, and I don't know if you can see it here. We've got yeah. the block with the D. Yeah. You know, and then we and have a rug. Put, rug. Is and then we have an S. Yep.
5: Chip, he did and, the same uh, thing Harry on mine. I got
6: a player that that says rug <laughs> under there, so.
5: <laughs> I have a similarly autographed from Harry Nielsen. He did the same thing on mine.
3: Very yeah. nice. <laughs> Very nice. Good thing. Chip. So- yep. So, yep, Bill, that's very cool. Thanks for showing that. That is great. So, At
5: the time, I didn't even know what he, what he meant by it. Then later, I found that. Yeah. Out. <laughs>
3: <You're> like, <laughs> how much? Just how much, saying, um, This is a rug.
0: right? Okay.
3: How much?
4: How much? Um, um, you know, talk between Bowie and Lennon between before recording Fame. Uh, is there? Okay, um, wait, wait. I wanted
3: ahead. to get to that later. Okay, all <laughs> right, fair enough. But go ahead, wait, wait, wait. Okay, Is okay. <laughs> I wanted to get to that in a bit. So, hang on to that question. I, I do want to get to that. Oh, but, but, but 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 before we get to that, um, I I just want to um, you know, get to I I wanted you guys to to react to um, you know, a few things here. So I I wanted to get back to what you said. Um, Scott, I th- I think you know, I can't remember if you or, you were you were or Chip who said this about Walls and Bridges because Walls and Bridges, I mean, even though it may have been recorded during this this period, I mean, it's one of my favorite albums of theirs. I mean, of his. I mean, I I love Walls and Bridges, and I wanted you guys to react to a a couple of quotes now we know that john was his own worst critic you know so Mm -hmm. keep that in mind um but yes you you uh, one of you alluded to this earlier um he he said um in a i think it was yeah it was 1980 issue of newsweek Said musically about walls and bridges my mind was just a clutter it was apparent in walls and bridges uh uh, it was apparent walls and bridges, which was the work of a semi-sick craftsman. There was no inspiration, and it gave off an aura of misery. I couldn't hear the music for the noise in my own head. By turning away, I began to hear it again. I, I mean, I just, I, I, don't, I don't know don't how get you, it.
4: I don't know how you record something like Number Nine Dream and then think that.
6: Mm-hmm.
2: <laughs> I think he was Certainly playing into the
6: 1980 narrative. But, yeah,
2: I, I couldn't agree yeah, more. Yeah, yeah, when, you, when you have a song like uh, Surprise, Surprise, Sweet Bird of yeah. Paradox, you know, mm-hmm. um, and then they ask you about it right in front of your wife, what are you going to say? Oh, that's a junk song that I hated, had nothing to do with. Right. <laughs> Whereas when he recorded it in the moment, it, it actually meant something. So, yeah, I agree with Jeff. I think a lot of his disparaging of Walls and Bridges was the 1980 narrative to just wipe that whole slate clean.
3: hmm interesting
5: but i do think john was honest honest to a fault at times too but i know i know what you're saying but there's so many songs there on walls and bridges that have you know inspiration even yoko even bless you i mean is, is yeah. inspired by yoko you know and uh how his state of mind at the time how he felt nobody loves you when you're down and out and yep you don't know what you got you know, until you lose it all that kind of scared. stuff scared. scared yeah, yeah.
0: yeah.
4: I mean, like you said, I mean, the story is just important sometimes as the album um I, I think I mean, I think these guys are great storytellers. I mean, Paul wants tells a great story. I mean, we we, didn't, we weren't gonna come to, to America without a number one. uh, you know, we lost the tapes for band on the Run. so I mean, I mean, it, sometimes it's the story. I mean, like you said, I mean, could he not say how much, you know that, how good these songs were just because it was the lost weekend and I'm back with Yoko now. so I can't I can't say you know, because I'm sitting next to Yoko, how good these songs might actually be. Mm-hmm. I yeah. think he
1: tried to downplay that period because he was away from Yoko and didn't want to give credit to those albums and how good they were. If you listen to the interviews that John gave for Walls and Bridges on the radio, he's hysterical. Yeah. He playing DJ and he's very upbeat and he sounded very positive about the album. Like he was yeah. really proud of it.
2: Well, and that's the point I was going to make is he promoted that album probably more than any other album he ever made. Um, Walls and Mind Games, he basically just hid in Lou Adler's house and gave a couple of interviews to some press. That was basically it. But for Walls and Bridges, holy cow, he was on the radio constantly. They had this massive
3: marketing campaign.
2: He was very proud of that album and didn't hide from it. Mm -hmm.
3: Yep. I think that's a very good point. Yeah, because I found another uh, interview he did around the times of, of Walls and Bridges. And yeah, in the, in the interview, I mean, he seemed like he just wanted to get it over with. You know, and, and oh, yeah. Right. Yeah, and, and you're right. Well, The Walls and Bridges era. Yeah, he was doing, wasn't that one of the times where I can't remember what station he was on. He was doing the weather and, and I do right. He was yeah. having yeah. fun.
1: WDW doing that. I mean, He's on, uh, yes. At Cisco.
6: Mm-hmm. The recording yeah. of which is in the National Broadcast Hall of Fame
3: oh really yeah yeah, yeah. and yeah. it went on for months all you know? in
6: 1980
5: he's but you know it's a whole different mindset though by then yeah. he's doing the yeah. whole uh you know sean and the father and the domestic thing with double yeah. fantasy and everything i could see six years earlier from this thinking ah, that was just a,
2: a dark time yeah yeah
0: i could
5: see and that i mean he
2: promoted walls and bridges for months i mean it yeah. started in september by December, he was on Monday Night Football. I mean, he was still giving interviews into January. I mean, he, he really pushed that album very hard. So I don't mm-hmm. think that is an album that he wanted to just kind of get out and forget about. Yep,
3: Ooh. exactly. You know, exactly. It's,
1: with John, I think it's always important to know what he said in all of his interviews, even if he changed his mind a lot. Mm-hmm. But um, but like Kit said, he could be his own worst critic. Yeah. yeah. I mean, there's there's a sign of a great artist. That he put down mm-hmm. that artist exactly joe
5: yeah a lot of artists do that you know i you know I try well to do i mean when time. he says
2: things like he wants to re-record every single Beatles song <laughs> yeah you know i mean yeah i, I mean that's that, an artistic impulse <laughs> of know? course i totally get that would he yeah, actually yeah. do it probably not but yeah that's that's who he was. i always believe that he kind of was always more or less telling the truth every interview he ever gave but that doesn't mean he couldn't have changed his mind two minutes later that's right. Yeah, exactly. exactly. He said,
1: your bird can sing was a throwaway. Yeah. Right. <laughs> yeah, and
2: don't
5: and don't forget once again, like I said, you know, the 1980. John is still six years removed from this. Right. Change it. Yeah. He changes mind tomorrow, but then yeah. six years. I mean,
2: let alone six years. Yeah. I mean, yeah.
3: That's very uh, true. And, uh,
2: do you know, Kit? Was that? Oh, that was Newsweek. You said,
3: yeah, mm-hmm. yeah.
2: I don't know. I mean, some of those 1980 interviews are really tough. You know, yep, the, the, the interview I've always thought was just one of the most missed opportunities ever. Yep. They had such access to him, and they asked the dumbest questions. Yes, and didn't they didn't follow up on any of them. I know. So the 1980 interviews frustrate me beyond belief. <laughs> oh yeah, no one absolutely. was willing to say why do you think that was a bad
3: album exactly yeah so yep i agree i agree all right let's get to those collaborations that uh tom you were you were asking about and, and just so uh just to refresh everyone's memory of course during this time uh he uh collaborated uh, was uh you know three uh collaborations we talked a bit about the harry nielsen one already but he also collaborated um with elton john and david bowie of course two of the biggest stars. Yeah, uh, And don't forget word. Ringo. Good
2: night, Vienna. And yeah. Ringo, of Ringo, course, Ringo. Ringo.
3: Um, yes, Ringo. And, um, you know, and and uh, with David Bowie and Elton John, particularly, you know, very interesting choices. Now, I mean, kind of no brainers. I mean, they were, as I said, biggest stars of uh, some of the biggest stars of that era, but also, um, you know, that they were uh, kind of groundbreaking in their own ways. I mean, they certainly were Beatlesque uh, sounding in their, in their own ways. They certainly were heavily influenced, but also, um, you know, were kind of groundbreaking in terms of image, um, you know, in terms of, of, of their looks and, and so forth. So, you know, really forward thinking of John, uh, to, uh, to collaborate with them as well. So, um, so let's start with, uh, well, since you, you were starting to bring it up, Tom, let's, let's talk about David Bowie. So, uh, so Tom, I'll let you. Yeah.
4: The, the bowie Brilliant. with the, the you know because there was what three co-writers on on the song um you know nothing great lyrically it's not like a really lyrically song um but artistically wise um you know i i i enjoy the song musically for what it is but um you know where how does Lennon fit into a co-writer on on the song
6: well they they were at the the Bowie session when they were doing Across the Universe and well, David man, had asked question, John to come play on Across the Universe. Right. And yeah. while they were in the studio, uh Carlos Alomar, the guitarist, right. uh started working on a, a playing back a track called Barefootin. And I can't remember the artist right now. Scott, if you can help no, me it was, out. It was yeah. foot, stomping.
1: Song. foot Stomping. Foot wasn't it?
6: Yeah. Yeah. Oh well Barefootin, I know. I don't
1: know No Foot stomping.
6: But and uh i knew there's a foot in there somewhere
2: <laughs> close <laughs> enough
6: and uh that you know it just developed from a jam and john was over in the corner going just kind of making a, a noise and that's how that was his contribution to the song was that yeah. very distinctive high-pitched fame that that's you hear the throughout like the it. song <laughs> yeah. right did
5: you ever hear him say we did some stevie wonder middle eight backwards something like that
3: yeah I I think he was
5: talking about fame I
0: think he was
5: I've read yeah but
2: Chip, correct me if I'm wrong but it's always been my understanding that when John left the session that night he had no idea there was a song called fame that's right yeah Bowie and okay um, I don't even know if Alomar was involved with this Bowie basically just took the music from that session crammed it together and released it as a single with Bowie Lynn and Alomar as the co-writers and right. John didn't even know about it until like he got a royalty check in the mail. <laughs> was a lo- wow. I have the number one hit in America. I know I don't remember <laughs> writing that. That's interesting.
1: Uh, the, the song was the creation of, because it was David Bowie's arrangement of foot stomping. And if you actually listen to it and you can watch it on YouTube, the riff is very much like what was used in Fame. But my <laughs> oh, question really that great. I was going to ask to <laughs> you, Scott, and to Chip, is that um when I've spoken to May Pang in the past, she said the song was very much influenced by Shame, Shame, Shame by Shirley and Company. Mm-hmm. And you know, you can hear because it rhymes with fame and the notes are going up, you know, shame well, actually down, shame, 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 yep. shame on you. You know, so maybe that part of the song influenced fame when the notes are going down like that. Or it may the, have been
6: the high-pitched, shame, 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 the high-pitched female vocals that John was inspiring yeah. John's little noise out of the corner. Yeah.
4: Mm-hmm. And and th- this was number one before whatever gets you through the night, correct?
6: No. no, I
2: think no. it was
3: after. after. It was after? came yeah, out after. in
2: 75, didn't it? Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. It was recorded in February of 75. Okay. Well, actually, what, it was recorded after John was back with Yoko. Uh, yeah. It was recorded that two or three days before. before they like, be I, I think they recorded, it, it, it's all in the book, Leninology, <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> Strange Days Indeed. <laughs> this is all a setup. But, Scott, uh, <laughs> that's right. Smooth. But, um, this is a yeah, plot. If I remember correctly, Ben was recorded on February 4th and John went back to Yoko on February 6th, something like that.
4: Hmm. But mm-hmm. but they were, they were kind of getting back together, they were in that
2: process oh, of recording. Yeah. And, yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I mean, we know for a fact he spent the night at the Dakota in November of 74. Mm. So, you know, before the Elton John concert. So there's that other myth, you know, like, oh, they reunited at the Elton John concert. Really? Why not at the Dakota the week before? Because they were together then, too. So, yeah, there's a lot that has been kind of glossed over. For
4: sure. Oh, yeah. Plenty. I mean, especially the whole, you know, Paul's involvement in that, uh, in the getting back together. So, yeah, a lot of that gets glanced over.
0: Yep.
5: Mm -hmm. Paul did it all, you know. Well, yeah. (laughs) That's a joke. It's a joke that
0: we have about Paul. That guy right there.
3: (laughs) (laughs) So, of course, we also have the collaborations that uh, Elton John um, did with uh, uh, John that certainly paid off Big time uh mm-hmm. for for john uh well and elton john too uh whether uh, we have whatever gets you through the night yes uh yep it worked both ways for them and uh and then of course uh elton's cover of lucy in the sky with diamonds so uh so let's start with uh whatever gets you through the night uh we talked about that uh on on our show uh a bit but uh that ended up of course uh scoring a number one for uh for john but We've uh, we've had some discussions on on uh, here a bit where we've had kind of mixed feelings uh, about the song. Although the remix that came out on the Give Me Some Truth compilation a couple of years ago, we really liked because uh, yeah. it brought John's voice out um, a bit more. But um, you know, did do you think that it you know in any way you know really kind of in you know inspired? john in any, any way creatively um you know kind of you know to work with elton in in that sense i mean i know they became very good friends and and you know and and you know i think partied and everything but do you think that you know creatively that elton rubbed that i'm gonna i can life. see elton's... chip about to say something
2: can i just jump in here chip i mean sure. the thing about elton's contribution to whatever gets you through the night is that was right at the end of the recording of the album the album mm-hmm. had just a lot of it had already been mixed and ready mm-hmm. to go. And Elton came in and did the vocal and piano overdub in August, mm-hmm. um, right at the end of the recording session. So I'm not quite sure how that really could have inspired John, because the album mm-hmm. was essentially done by the time Elton added his parts.
1: Mm-hmm. But Scott, if you listen to the early takes of whatever gets you through the night, it's yeah. a very different arrangement altogether. It yeah. was mm-hmm. cracked three
2: separate right, times. Yeah. Oh.
1: Yeah, and Elton really pumped it up.
2: <laughs> yeah. yeah, definitely. Yeah. But I don't know how much it would have inspired John since the album was essentially done at that point. Like yeah. like like Chip said, they tried multiple arrangements mm-hmm. before they finally it just settled made on a the click. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm.
6: didn't curious... hurt, didn't hurt that Elton was the biggest star on the planet at the time. Right. right. Well,
4: true. And then speaking of the biggest uh, you know, musician on the planet i mean he records lucy in the sky with diamonds uh that goes to number one correct uh ken yes. my and my i'm curious like when when an artist covers like a beatles track and if it's goes to number one let's say does that count as a number one for john and
5: paul
2: as songwriters as it.
5: songwriters yeah oh yeah, yeah. sure you're not, trying to, you're not trying to push the Kanye West song with Paul, are you? Oh, no, no, never.
4: No, never. But, but the trying. difference is like, I mean, they have these, you're right, the 21, right? I mean, they could have kind of literally say that, I mean, we got 22 number one, or even 23 with know. World Without Love. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, yeah. I mean, those, if those songs were number one and they wrote them, then those are number ones for, for John and Paul, or Beatles, or whatever you want to say.
1: And what do you do with the Stars Line Forty Five medley? Yeah.
5: yeah. Well, personally, I, I don't agree with I don't agree with that. But I know what you're saying. But I I personally don't think like that. For writing, you know, yeah. Yes. Like the Billy Preston have a number one with with Get Back, you know, kind of thing. You know, on, well, it says Be- Beatles and Billy Preston. Right. With, with Beatles, <laughs> with Billy Preston.
3: <laughs> yeah, but uh... so that's, that's another show that's another show exactly <laughs> but um but yeah no and and i know that uh you know that that was uh whatever gets you through the night was the you know, last song they were recording but i just wondered if you know maybe his work with elton would later on and and we'll get to that as, as mm-hmm. we're ending our discussion but uh you know would go on to uh, in any way inspire him uh years later when uh, he would record double fantasy i don't know you know if if his work with elton would you know, but uh, but we'll we'll get to that in a minute. Uh, that's Can all, I that's... ask
1: one thing about the Elton John. <clears> throat> throat> yeah, go ahead. Mm-hmm. Um, the B side of "Lucy in the Sky with Diamonds" was Elton's yep. cover of "One Day at a Time." Mm. I've heard that John played on it, and I heard that he didn't really play on it. Is there any information that you have to confirm?
6: He did not play on it.
1: Mm. Huh.
6: We have a quote from him saying, and I, I could find it here if you want to give me a second, but that he did not play on it
4: a quote from who elton john a quote john, from
6: john okay did he
4: change Qu- his mind WBCN. after
5: that
6: sorry joe <laughs> did he change his mind after that i don't know let me look at that <laughs> while you guys talk amongst yourselves there. okay
3: well good because i wanted to ask Ken then about the last collaboration good night vienna
6: because
3: hmm. uh, i know you're a big fan of of that um so you know what uh what do you think you know came of i mean we know it's it's a great song uh but uh but you know what do you think of that from from this period i mean do you think it um it, you know in any way showed a, a particular change in his in John's style of songwriting or or anything like that from that period Are you asking me? Yeah, yeah, I'm sorry. Yes, ken sorry.
1: So much. I mean he wrote I'm the greatest, he wrote Goodnight Vienna. They, mm-hmm. they really were suitable for Ringo. You know, um, mm-hmm. I don't really see that much of a change in John as a songwriter during this period. Mm-hmm. I think Mind Games is more a continuation of what he was doing with Imagine, mm-hmm. you know, as an album, pretty much. And so was Walls and Bridges. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I don't really see as a songwriter specifically that much of a change. You can talk about production if, if um, you think those Leonard albums were different production wise.
3: We're getting to that.
1: <laughs> yeah. You know. Well, I found the quote
6: about oh. One Day at a Time. Mm-hmm. Yeah, to circle back to that, uh, it was from two months after the session uh, when he was promoting Walls and Bridges uh, with WBCN in Boston. Mm. And John said, I wasn't there when he did One Day at a Time, but I sang Lucy with him and put a bit of reggae in the middle
1: of it. Right. Was it John's idea to have the reggae bit? Yes. Yeah. Oh, well, was the entire arrangement, except for the reggae bit, was it all Elton John's arrangement? Or did John have anything to do with the arrangement of Lucy in the Sky? Because it's a lot slower than the Beatle version. I think a lot of that
6: would have fallen on the shoulders of Gus Dudgeon, Elton's producer. I I don't think John had a lot to do with the arrangement of that. I think he just had the the middle bit that they, they, you know, as they were running down the tune you know, that kind of worked itself in, but I don't think John had. Do You don't think Elton had a say in, in that? Oh, I'm sure he did. Um, but, but you were asking what I thought, whether or not John was involved in, in the arrangement. And I think it was more Gus and Elton and even Elton says that he'll go in and do the tracking sessions and then leave everything else to Gus mm. to go do all the horn overdubs, go do all the vocal overdubs. Um, you know, Elton's got kind of a short uh, attention span when when it comes to recording. You know, he, he's you, you've heard about how quickly he writes and the like, and I, I think he records the same <clears throat>
2: records the same way. Okay, I, I wouldn't be surprised if he stuck around for the whole session for Lucy and this guy Diamonds. I bet he was pumped to be working with John. <laughs> he was, anyway, yeah. he was John
5: was keen, oxygen. John was keen on reggae anyway.
6: Yeah.
5: Uh, so I mean, yeah, yeah, I could see John suggesting that wanting that
3: exactly all right so now that it was brought up let's talk about uh, how john changed and and evolved as a producer now i found something interesting this was a from 1975 a rolling stone uh, interview uh uh, by pete hamill and this is uh, and we've mentioned this gentleman um, on various shows richard perry um and uh, Pete Hamill asked John, said, Richard Perry has described you as a superb producer, but maybe in too much of a hurry. <laughs> and John said, That's true, laughing. But then later said, uh, If there's uh, a quality that occasionally gets in the way of my talent, it's that I get bored qu- uh, quick, unless it's done quick. And then later said, But I accept that criticism and I have it of myself, but I don't want to make myself so painstaking that it's boring. But I should, and it says pause, maybe think a little more, maybe. But on the other hand, I think my criticism of somebody like Richard Perry would be that he's great, but he's too painstaking. It gets too slick, and somewhere in between uh, that is where I'd like to go. Uh, I keep finding out all the time what I'm missing that I want to get out of it. So, you know, I think that's kind of an interesting uh, perspective on it because, yeah, I don't, I would not describe his production style as slick. That's, mm. you know, that's for sure. So, you know, what do you guys think about his, you know, experience during this period? You know, the, the quotes last weekend period as a producer. So he, you know, produced Pussycats, uh, ended up producing the Rock and Roll album. Um, you know, what, what do you think of his production style? how it he, how it evolved
6: he also did some other production work in early 75 that hasn't you know it, it's in a forthcoming volume of of Lennonology out now Ooh, and excellent. uh where he he worked with uh Lloyd Burton who was uh Roy Chacalas wife mm-hmm. and uh he also did some production for uh the band BOMF and i think most of us know what that that stands for now um but uh i don't believe any of that was commercially released uh uh chris englehart who's written a trio of fantastic books on uh uh he's the one who sourced this information initially about the sessions with roy and john
2: and one of his books had a cd in it with uh some of the dog soldier stuff right so that was incantation right was one of the songs yes yeah i mean i've mentioned it you know at the top of the show one of the things that really fascinated me so much about mind games when you look at the recording session dates is how he recorded the album in essentially a week which was his mo right i mean imagine was like a week sometime in new york city was a couple of weeks that's it but then he spent well over a month mixing the album which I thought was really very unusual for him, you know, where he talks about how he doesn't want to get too fussy with it. But boy, that's exactly what he did with Mind Games. He, he and in my opinion, he kind of ruined it in the mix, just you know, going over it and over, <laughs> it and over it and over it. And it just created this muddy kind of sound that yeah. was very kind of un Lennon like um, And then, God, the Phil Spector sessions must have driven him crazy, you know, where he <laughs> spend three months and you only have four songs to show for it um but then you know like chip mentioned earlier pussycats they cranked it out in about a week or so um again the problems with the the musicians (laughs) delayed things a bit and then by the time he got back to walls and bridges it was business as usual again very i mean we have the bootlegs of him rehearsing the band that's no excuse because when it was time to hit the red light they were going to be ready they were not going to waste any time screwing around So um, I think you can see that evolution of Mind Games. He's kind of like, what am I doing? I don't have the sound. I don't have the, you know, he said something that Mind Games didn't have any kind of a vision for it. He couldn't see what he was trying to do. And a year later with Walls and Bridges, he suddenly had that vision again. And you can see the distinct differences in how those two albums sound, how quickly they were recorded, how quickly they were mixed. Two very different sessions in two different states of mind that he was in. For sure. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
1: Very interesting. Mm-hmm. I've always loved the production on Mind Games. You know, I'm very much about the balance of all the different elements in the mix, whether it's vocals or instrumentation. And I think what he did on that album was fine.
0: Mm-hmm. I think
1: it's a much cleaner sound on Walls and Bridges. Yes. Yes. That's, That's the yeah. thing for me.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: But, yeah. Uh, yes. I, I, you know, a lot of fans have said to me that, like you said, Scott, that. Playing game sounds muddy to them. I never found that to be the case. Yeah, I...
2: money for a John Lennon album. muddy yeah, money for a John Lennon album. I think would be the way to look at it. Yeah, maybe yeah. not muddy in a in an objective sense, but compared to Plastic Ono Band or Walls and Bridges, I'm fascinated to see what's going to happen to it next summer. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> we'll yeah. That, yeah. Right? Let's well, see. One thing, uh, and
6: now I've lost the thought. As you were
0: all right <laughs> we'll
5: come
6: back. we always we'll come talk back. about that
5: that version oh, that came out on cd oh, i always get oh. to, i always get the one it. there's a remixed mm-hmm. one
1: that mm-hmm. i know you guys have said you really prefer that one
5: yeah i, I think i do
6: a, a little bit yep
3: yep chip what i, were you I just say? wanted
1: to make the comment that
6: mind games was the first album that john produced on his own
3: mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. okay mm-hmm.
0: Mm -hmm.
4: And I think it's, I think it's
6: a great job from John. I mean, I I still don't understand
4: why. I mean, even with it being rushed as it was, and then, you know, spending a lot of time, you know, what, with, with post work, but um, I mean, I think it sounds great. I mean, you hear things like, I know, I know. And you, to me, that sounds like that's somebody that's on the top of their game, top of their craft spending time on it. That doesn't feel like a rushed
2: album to me at all. No. Well, can we throw one more thing in here too? Let's not forget the musicians, the band oh, right. that John yeah. worked with on Mind Games. He never worked with them Spinoza. before. And I don't think he ever worked with them again. Yeah. Um, whereas imagine um, some of sometime in New York City, Walls and Bridges, it was all Jim Keltner, Klaus right. Norman, guys that he really had a connection with. Yes, and he had he, yeah. You just have to wonder how much of a connection, uh, how much that mattered. Between, you know, what if, what if Keltner and Borman had recorded mind games with how different mm-hmm. of an album would that be?
3: Interesting. At all? Oh, Keltner yeah.
6: was on mind games.
2: Oh uh, yeah, yeah. Not all yeah. of it though.
6: Not all of it, no. <laughs>
3: mm-hmm. Yep. But, but that's interesting. I think definitely, I agree that mind game, or uh, excuse me, Walls and Bridges had, I mean, to me, it does have a cleaner sound than, my games. I mean yeah. I, I just think he yeah. really you know you can really hear his evolution or you know you listen to my games of pussycats cats and then yeah. you listen to the <laughs> you listen to walls and bridges
2: and I he mean, kept that going. You know when he in October then when he re-recorded the rock and roll album um somebody mentioned earlier you can tell which one is John and which one is Phil Spector cuz yes. they're very different. John exactly. you know ain't that ain't that a shame just crisp and clear and yeah. And then you get to Sweet Little 16, and oh boy, the Quaaludes kick in, and, and yeah, the late night on the, the Sunset Strip all of a sudden. Yeah. John was
6: uh, John. made the comment that uh, if you can't tell the difference between my productions and Phil's, we might as well be the Everly Brothers. Right. Now, I'm not sure what he meant by that, but that's what he had to say about the disparity between the,
1: the sounds of the productions
3: yeah
1: <laughs> when you listen to something like bebop alula especially you know it's much leaner production yeah on john's part yeah but you know i was gonna say scott that if it's true that most of the songs on mind games are written so quickly those are great songs it didn't Yeah. the way of the quality of the songs which is what matters the most to me yeah it's such a solid album all the way through and so underrated yep Oh, yeah, I, I, more. I like
5: a lot, more of, a more. lot of people love it now, I'm
1: sorry. <laughs> Yeah. Well, I, I look at Mind Games and Walls and Bridges as back to back
2: my my two favorite Latin albums. The thing that bugs me about Mind Games is <sighs> this is I'm going on a deep dive here. So remember when you were 13 and you had a crush and she or he said, No, I'm not really into you, and you're like, but we both love playing kickball. We're meant to be together forever and ever. And it's just horrible 13 year old poetry. And that's what I get out of mind games where John is saying from Liverpool to Tokyo, our love was meant to be. And he's trying so hard to win his crush back. And he's not really being that John Lennon that we know he's trying to be the sentimental sap um, to get Yoko back, you know butchering a japanese word it's not isumasen by the way i don't know why he didn't check with her on that it's a terrible pronunciation um just oh it's kind of cringe in I in my the song though <laughs> the yeah right I mean, yeah, to to the, with the melody the productions you know it, right. there's so much to it but i just so many of those songs when you dig a little bit deeper it's like oh really john you can do better than that you know a meat city that's kind of cool but I get high when I see you go by. I mean, it's
4: oh <laughs>
0: yeah.
4: I don't know if there's sap in it. I I think
2: it's great sap, and I'll I'll sap that up all day long. <laughs> you know what? It's John Lennon sap, so yeah. it's better than most, right? Exactly. A bad yep. John Lennon album is better than ninety nine percent of
3: what's out there. That's right. Yeah, I mean, I'm not saying it's a
2: bad album. I'm yeah. Mm-hmm. Jealous bad guy on.
1: is in that category. You know, mm-hmm.
3: yep. I watch jealous guy. <laughs> mm-hmm.
0: In looking
6: for something else, I found a a great quote about John's uh, dissatisfaction with his own work. Mm -hmm. And this was from a a Capital Radio interview to uh, promote mind games. And he said, I'm too close to it. It takes me about two years to stop hearing edits or which take number it was. And as (laughs) usual, I always think, oh, well, they should have had more bass here or what happened to the backbeat or the guitar didn't have enough echo. I can't look at it objectively. I'm too personally involved, not only with the statements and the sound and the production and whether they mastered it right. And is it going to sell? Yeah. Mm.
3: Yeah. I can, I can understand that. Mm. I mean, I, I, I think, I think I can, which
6: know. is the, basically the quote of somebody that's a producer. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You know, he's, he's doing his first production and he's realizing all these things that he might not have had to experience before. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, all the decisions came down to just, just him.
2: Yep. Right. Exactly. Well, he, who, who was credited, Chip, as the producer for the Elephant's Memory album? Was it John and Yoko? I believe so. Okay. Because he seemed like pretty much the main producer on that album. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yep. You
1: know, what gets me is you were talking about, Scott, when, um, when John said that uh, Walls and Bridges was the work of a semi-sick craftsman, he yeah. said uh, also... Listen to the album. Sounds like the guy's depressed. Yeah, right. So, what was Plastic on old Band? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> you
0: know,
1: right? Yeah,
3: that's a happy little album, isn't it? <laughs>
5: maybe on that one, he, he he wanted it to be
2: depressed. I'm sure he he to be yeah. depressed. Whereas this one, maybe he wasn't. That wasn't his intent. I don't know. Well, and to go back to Tom's point, if Number Nine Dream is depressed, well, then give me some more of that depression. That's yeah. <laughs> exactly. That's some good stuff. I mean Lindsay's
4: consistent throughout his whole career with criticizing his music yeah. right yeah. it's just not one period i mean it goes back to the beatles days i mean so i mean i yeah. give him credit for that
2: yeah, yeah. Totally. never satisfied the mark of a true artist that's right, yeah, right? that's
3: it's right, right. Yeah. Uh, let's talk a bit good we've been kind of heading in that direction anyway um about his songwriting um during this period uh you know how how it changed how it didn't change um, you know, he uh, was asked um, in that same Rolling Stone 75 interview um, about his songwriting, and he talked about, you know, clearly he was still stinging from that sometime in New York uh, in uh, you know experience, and he said that you know that in fact his political activism from the early 70s now this is he's saying this in 75 i'm sure if you asked him a year later he'd tell you something different but he said uh that that whole you know his his political activism in the early 70s with you know uh and and writing that album he said that it almost ruined his songwriting in a way he said it became journalism and not poetry and basically Mm. i feel that i'm a poet even if it uh does uh go as he put it, ba dee ba do ba um. I'm not a formalized poet. I have no education, so I have to write it in the simplest forms usually. Um, and I realized that over a period of time, and not just because I met Jerry Rubin off the plane, uh, but that was like a culmination. I realized that we were poets, but we were really folk poets, and rock and roll was folk poetry. Uh, I've always felt that rock and roll was folk music. Then I began to take it seriously on another level saying, well, I'm reflecting what is going on. Right. And then I was making an effort to reflect what was going on. Well, it doesn't work like that. It doesn't work as pop music or what I want to do. So he clearly, after that whole sometime in New York city experience, then decided to go back to, you know, to his other, you know, style and and felt that he was just being too blunt and literal on sometime in New York City. So what do you guys think about his writing style on the albums that he produced from 73 to 75? Do you think it, you know, his songwriting and subjects all changed in any way? Or do you think he kind of reverted back to... His previous solo material. What What do you guys think? Well, I,
5: did, I didn't notice anything different. Like Ken was saying earlier. That's what I was coming into the show mm-hmm. with. I think we talked about this before. John sadly didn't live long enough, really. But during that, but then that period, I don't I don't notice much of a difference, unless you want to say after the the blow he was dealt with, sometime in New York City, he laid off this, you know, the the heavy political commentary. Although you got bring on the Lucy, you know, right. you got. Stuff which was like from '71, which was also early. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and but the thing is, other than that, I mean, I don't see anything different really in John's, for me, in his style. He's always kind of like, you know, personal how he's feeling about things and stuff. But he did, if you want to say, after sometime in New York City, I think kid, as you were saying, he kind of got a little more. He uh, used to mellow a little bit, you know, more mm-hmm. easygoing about it. That part. I, you know, I might say, but I think the real the real change that I could notice comes with double fantasy, you know, but that's another story. But then I see a big a change, but I don't see so much of a change. this right. point for me. Yeah,
4: I don't see much of change either. I, I agree. I mean, you, you've got different angles of, of John's writing. I mean, you've got the simplicity of like a bless you, like like Scott mentioned. I mean, how is that any different than it's only love? Uh, you know, I mean, that's as simple as you can get. Um, you know you, you get the meanness of uh, you know stealing glass i mean you can put that right next to uh you know how do you sleep um you know i mean the, I, there's a lot of beautiful stuff out the blue is one of the excuse me one of the most beautiful songs i think he's ever written um and that was you know considered part of that at that, that time uh you know um number nine dream i it, for me is just like i think it's his best song period i you know especially production wise um you know it is what it is i mean it's a dream i mean as you it's it's just a fantastic, perfect song in, in my opinion, and yeah. he did this during the supposed, you know, lost weekend. You know that mm-hmm. doesn't sound like someone that's lost to me.
5: Mm-hmm. That one's not, but a lot of the ones on Walls Bridges so well, kind of maybe. going down on love mm-hmm. and things like that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But, but okay, I agree with you on that. that. I agree.
4: With, I agree to, with... That depends on the listener, you know. So
1: mm-hmm. yeah, oh. I, I definitely think that there's very little difference in the songwriting. It's the same subjects, a lot of songs yeah. about Yoko. Perfect, yeah. You know, I mean, Out the Blue, as Tom was saying, is one of his sure. best songs, and how different is that than Oh My Love, you know? right? right. Uh, yeah. He was still, well, you were saying um, Bring on the Lucy is really from 71, but he, he did his share of political songs. Um, I wouldn't call Bless You a simple song, Tom, because in terms of the lyrically. chords, it's a little bit jazzier. Yeah, um, but lyrically it is yeah but uh yeah and stealing glass and how do you sleep you can always make the the similarities mm. between the two of them there you know i didn't see that that much of a change but you know he was still writing very personal songs apologetic songs jealous yes. Guy and yes. then are very much alike in that in that regard yeah there there isn't that big a difference but just the material was always so strong and getting back to mind games when you're talking about out the blue and I know, I know, and hmm. you are here, you know, to me, those are three of the greatest ballady songs of John's solo career. Not yeah. to mention the title track to mind games, which I, this...
4: that's the track I met. You are here. That's the track I met. You are here, which I I think it's, you know, it is kind of, you know, simple love song, just like it's only love is a very simple, lyrically love song.
2: Hmm. Okay. Yeah, I would say the big difference in songwriting was sometime in New York City. You know, Mind Games and Walls and Bridges, that's mm-hmm. that's John. But you could see the evolution. You know, John had started off 1970 on with Power to the People. Um, yes, Imagine has Oh My Love, but it, he was also doing God Save Us and um, Give Me Some Truth. You know, and so there was kind of a little bit of radicalization going on. And by the time he met Jerry Rubin and those guys, <laughs> You know, that's when the difference changed. And there's only one album in his entire career where he would have repeated got to, got to, got to, got to, got to. to." (laughs) And that was where the the songwriting changed. Mm -hmm. And that was a huge misfire. Mind Games was the reversion back to that that style, for sure. And, you know, number nine, Dream, that's going back to 1967. You know, just that dreamy production sound. Mm -hmm. Yeah, he found himself again after that evolution towards something that was not truly who he was which i think is, is the way he uh phrased it in 1980 was like that wasn't really me that rabble rousing nah that's not who i am
6: to, to bring some of the, the songwriting into focus for for mind games uh we, we talked about how we'd wait until the last minute to to get things uh wrapped up because he say i realize all of a sudden i realize that i have a week and then all of a sudden it starts to come out but uh, three of the songs that he wrote in mid to late July for Mind Games were Meat City, Rock and Roll People and Tide As, which are not the same song, <laughs> not, not stellar examples of, of John's writing. As great of a production as Tide As is, you know, yeah. those those are three rather simple songs, Yeah, um, you know, and, and Scott had also said that he didn't do anything in 73 the, uh, or in late '73, he did write "Nobody Loves You." Oh, right. You're down yep. and out. Yeah. Okay. And mm-hmm. the reason he didn't put that out at the time, is he said, "I, I if I had recorded it when I wrote it, I would have ruined it." Yeah.
3: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. What when does Fr- Frank
6: Sinatra fit in here? Because
5: <laughs> he wanted Frank Sinatra to do that. I thought that's right. But,
3: yeah. Uh, I mean, he's had no Sinatra
2: productive. was too busy rejecting suicide.
4: Yeah, yeah go. <laughs> I mean, he's had bits and pieces of non-productive, uh, you know, periods throughout his career, starting with the Beatles. I mean, especially we we, we looked at you know, the get back you know, January of. Of of sixty nine. I mean, what does he come in with? You know, not really much. Um, and then you know, going into like you said, this late seventy three, uh, early seventy four period, where he's not, you know, feeling the the creativeness or or, or his muse is not there. Um, so I mean, this is, I mean, I, I guess you can say it's not really that new. I mean, a, a lot of artists go through these periods where you know, the, either they have you know writer's block or they just uh, you know don't have any the creative force just isn't with them at the moment.
5: It's it and isn't here's funny else. how many years they go today. These days, between albums, well, yeah, exactly. I, I mean, granted, yeah. granted, what you say, Tom, I totally get yeah. what you're saying for the time. You know, for John, for that
4: time, people. because I mean, you're expected but, to have an album a year or
5: two albums yes, a year. Yeah, yeah. you know, goes seven yeah. eight years without an album. Before, yeah,
1: not
3: anymore. Yeah.
1: John still managed to put out an album a year. Yeah, seventy yeah. yeah. through yep. seventy four, correct. Even when you're talking about January of sixty nine, there were some Lennon songs that the Beatles didn't pursue further. Right. Day. So yeah. it's not like it was only Dig a Pony. Yeah, <laughs> right. Mm-hmm.
3: Yeah. Jumping off something you said, Scott, I think maybe one way that his material did change a bit is that, you know, and, and, and paving the way for what would be double fantasy is, um, you know, I think he was starting to move away from and probably as a result from the sometime in New York City uh debacle the you know moving away from the overtly political uh and and the angry and the revolutionary and not that he hadn't written personal personal uh material before he certainly had and we know that but uh, but he was you know looking even more and more and more inward um you know writing about vulnerability about personal failings about love and that would really come in in stereo uh in double fantasy where you know although he would be a little bit more about domesticity and and um you know family and that kind of thing but he would also write about his own personal failures too yeah. um, like i'm losing
2: you yeah example.
3: Right. exactly right you know, know
2: thing even... you just said about the introspection and the family and the personal failings name one song on sometime in New York city that touches on any of those topics. exactly
3: none right so you're getting away
2: from <laughs> that that's his bailiwick is being John Lennon and he just got away from that
3: exactly yeah and and so you know slowly it seems in, in this you know during that period he was you know moving away from that and I mean he would maybe do some like free to people and and all, like like trying to put in some peace and love kind of stuff but you know, eventually he'd kind of move away. I mean, certainly with this final album, it was more, as I said, about personal you know, family and, and that kind of thing. So, uh, okay. So I mentioned um, that I I thought it would be interesting to, you know, kind of bringing this to, to a... oh, Chip, did you want Can to- Can I say
6: one more thing here oh, sure. uh, real quick before we move on? Oh, yeah, uh, oh, sure. Tom was alluding to how, how strong of a song that number nine Dream was. And uh, it wasn't all good stuff because right after number nine dream on the demo tape was probably better classified as an improvisation, but it was called I'd sooner be. He goes, I'd sooner be a pygmy than a dwarf. and I'd rather be a monkey than an astronaut. And I would have loved to have heard that get finished, but that all we've got is, you know, maybe there'll be some more on the new box, but we only have about a minute and a half of it.
3: Right. Okay. Wow. Mm interesting interesting
6: so at least he knew how which which of his stuff was good that he should pursue and which he didn't
3: yeah
2: okay. <laughs> what's not good about monkey and astronaut that's amazing right I that's yep. all day long
3: oh my gosh so I thought it would be interesting as as we're wrapping this up um, to see if you guys can think of um, and and those of you watching out there, Feel free to join in in the comments and, and share your picks. Um, songs from this period, if you could pick out, you know, two or three songs uh, that you think really, you know, stand out to you, that that you think really I- encapsulate this period, you know, the, the Lost Weekend. And it doesn't have to be the exact 73 to 75, if you want to go back a little further, as, as Scott, you were saying at the top of this discussion, um, you know, songs that you think really encapsulate this period um, in terms of, you know, subject matter, production, you know, that that really stand out to you as like, you know, these are the songs of this era that that are particularly strong or, or just particularly um, you know come to mind when you think of this era and and maybe demonstrate the growth that he um that he was experiencing or or just in any way stand out for you well um, we've
6: already said how great we think out the blue is yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. as, as yeah. long and as well as nobody loves you when you're down and out you know mm-hmm. those are both i think good examples of what you were talking about
3: mm-hmm. Okay. So great. So Chip, those are your, uh, those are your picks. Those Uh, are my picks. Okay. Uh, Joe, you look like you're you're ready to go.
5: No, well, I don't know, because I don't know if we're talking just favorites, like what's your favorite or specifically what, you know, because like I I would say something like, uh, you know, nobody loves you when you're down and out kind of fits the, the period of what, you know, encapsulates maybe what he was, Feeling or what you got, or something like that. You know, mm, yeah. I, I love stealing glass. I want to squeeze well, that in there. Yeah,
4: know? yeah. Stealing glass. I mean, is a perfect example of that period, right? I mean, he's got how close was he to Alan Klein, and to to get that far, you know, removed from it, where he feels like he has to write a song, you know, like that to describe what you know what he's feeling towards this individual. Um, you know, but, and then, but the, the you know, letting, you know, Jesse and Davies play this wonderful guitar lick and, you know, number nine dream, um, you know, I, I think is just, you know, beautiful and, you know, out of the blue, I know, I know is, is again, I think is, <laughs> I can't yeah, say yeah, this, right. I can't say the title of this song enough. Um, mm-hmm. uh, it, it's just so, you know, for me musically, it's, it, it's, it's, it's a perfect piece of music. Mm-hmm.
3: Excellent. Yeah. Okay. Uh Scott. I'm gonna throw I'm
2: gonna throw in Isuma Um Mm -hmm. I think it's a very sincere song. He he tries to speak to her in Japanese. Mm
0: -hmm. You know,
2: that's it. That's as heartfelt and sincere as you can get. He does it very badly, very bad pronunciation. (laughs) Um, but you know, the fact that he went there to really put his soul into that song and say, I'm sorry for what I did. And you know, I mean, we don't want to get into the salacious details of the the whole problem with their marriage but he had a lot to be sorry for yeah. and that song feels very very sincere from his heart. Mm-hmm. I would also say as many people have pointed out the lost weekend was not all doom and gloom and good night Vienna strikes me as a as a really fun song just John and Ringo mm-hmm. having some fun and that encapsulates the good parts of of the lost weekend and uh, don't forget number nine dream. I like uh surprise, surprise, sweet bird of paradox. I like scared, um yeah. Old Dirt Roads, pretty great, you know. So there's there's a lot of songs I think that are very representative of this era. Every time well, I Scared's hear surprise, surprise, I, yeah, every time I hear the word, you know,
4: somebody say surprise, surprise, I think of the 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 Cecilia Black uh song, Surprise. Is that is that who does that song? Surprise, surprise. Um <laughs> I, I can't forget who does that song, but uh, I think yeah. it's... it's,
2: it's, it's uh...
6: Yeah. Well,
2: and Surprise, Surprise is such an interesting song, because wasn't it like Paradox? Wasn't that the name of a restaurant that Yoko worked at? But mm-hmm. the song is technically about May, so mm-hmm. it's kind of like, it's a mixture of May and Yoko, kind of all Sound in like one Julia Sounds like Julia. I like Surprise,
5: Surprise. But yeah. it sounds perfunctory to me, though. Yeah. <laughs> As a, you know... You know it's mm-hmm. it's good. I enjoy it, but it, mm-hmm. I just think it's like it's not going off for me. Yeah,
2: kind of thing. Yeah, how about what what
4: you got? That one kind of oh yeah, yeah yeah. Hard. yeah, yeah. And I love Scared too. I think Scared is a
0: fun scared, track very, from this yeah. period too. Yeah.
3: All right, Ken. How about you? What are what are your picks?
1: What everyone said <laughs> <laughs> and other things. I, mean,
3: <laughs> I know you got others.
1: No what the um the the two outstanding ballads to me are Out the Blue and I Know I Know. I've been mm. saying that for the longest time. Mm. I know, I know it sounds better and better through time for me. Yes, I agree. Very Agreed. much, very that song in particular. Yep. Um, Mind Games itself is one of the, the greatest singles of uh, John's solo career. I always wished Intuition had been a, a single because I think that could have gone somewhere. Mm. Um, and like you, Scott, I love ICMSN, especially mm-hmm. the uh, lead guitar solo from David Spinoza. Yeah, me too. I love that. But she told me a long time ago it was all one take. And it just worked. <laughs> the way that song ends with his guitar playing is just phenomenal. It's
5: like his heart is aching at that end. It's like it's, yeah, it you, feels can feel, so, you can feel yeah. like the pain and the you know the torture dealing with the guilt. Yeah.
4: You know, Ken, you brought up a point about mind games being, you know, the single for Mind Games. But I have to ask Chip and Scott was you know, um, was there ever a proposed second single for that album?
6: It was going to be, uh, what was it? Um, Intuition.
1: I wish it was. Well, it's commercial. Yeah. That's so for sure. Yeah.
6: And mind games actually side two was side one. Really? The album was going to open with Intuition and side two was going to open with mind games.
1: Wow. Mm. So were all the songs on side two going to be side one?
6: Identical <laughs> tune stack just flipped.
1: Okay.
6: And the album, uh, the album which i think everybody might know by now was originally going to be called out the
1: blue mm-hmm. wow okay thank goodness walls and bridges um i love the fact scott that you mentioned what you got because mm-hmm. i can't believe that was a b-side <laughs> right <laughs> that was strong enough to be an a-side for a hit so been. i love it you know yep. um scared is definitely one of my favorite solo lennon songs it's not just a great song but I love the production on there. Mm-hmm. What What's done with the horns in particular. Yeah. The sound of, you know, the wolf at the very beginning. Yeah. <laughs> really <Perfect for> Halloween.
5: <laughs> I play it
1: every Halloween on my show, yeah. on my radio show. Um, And John's vocals are just off the charts on scared. And I'm glad to see nobody loves you when you're down and out getting this acknowledgement. I love number nine dreams, stealing glass. The production on stealing glass is amazing. You know, I love, Yeah, everything about walls and bridges. So it's hard to single out just two or three.
3: Yeah, Mm.
2: yep. I'm glad glad you mentioned the wolves, Ken. When we were working on Linenology, I bought a lot of really weird things as part of our research. And maybe the weirdest thing I got was the album that features the wolf howl.
5: What one of us could do that?
2: Yep, they pulled it out of the library and there it was. And they also used it on the Elephant's Memory album too. So I tracked through the album very carefully and noted which howl they used. (laughs) (laughs) Which album was that? It's uh, it's, actually, it was put out. Yeah, do you have the exact name? The Language and Music of the Wolves, narrated by Robert Redford. It was like an educational album, I think, put out by the Smithsonian about wolves. And Robert Redford just talks about wolves and when they're nervous, they sound like this. <laughs> <Woo-hoo-hoo-hoo-hoo>. <laughs> I'll be going on eBay after this and looking that up. Yeah, yeah. Very, I think I think the whole thing's on YouTube. You don't even have to go yeah. that far. Yeah. Now, what no. bothers me, and now, now we're really getting into the weeds, there are actually two different covers. Which one did John have? I don't know. No <laughs> <idea>. <laughs> I just know which one I have.
3: See, folks, you watch or listen to this show, and you always oh, learn something new. Yep. I That's didn't right. know that. Whether wow. it's worth knowing it or not.
2: It's it's right up there. If it wouldn't take me ten minutes, I'd go grab it. Oh,
3: no. oh that's bad. Wow, that is really interesting. Yep. And yep. uh just quickly, the the songs I pick are uh, what you got. They do I know many of you mentioned it, but I just love I mean, great, you know, great backing band and, and lyrically I love what he does when you know at first You think, you know, when he's saying, Well, it's Saturday night and I just got to rip it up. And, you know, and at first you think, Oh, this is going to be one of those rockers, you know. And then, of course, he takes a hard left (laughs) and, you know, and then turns it into this, you know, to, of course, saying, you know, partying isn't what it's about. I mean, Mm. it's, you know, so I I like how he subverts our expectations. And uh, Bless You, which has been mentioned um, earlier, gorgeous, gorgeous song. Yeah, I love the kind of jazzy aspect to it. And, and what an interesting, I mean, talking about, you know, growing as a songwriter, I love how the song, you know, you would think it's about bless you, meaning Yoko, but it's no, bless the person who is with Yoko right now. And, I mean, it's about Yoko, but it's also about, you know, bless who, you know, the oh, person know who is that. with her now. I mean, that is, I mean, that's fascinating. Well, now. I mean, that's the, you know, I think that's a, that's an incredible uh, incredible song just, just oh, that, the beginning that, that, does that, say that, bless you wherever you are yeah exactly Ooh. the beginning does say yoko uh, is addressing yoko but then it does address who she's yeah, with yeah. now i mean you know i just you know take good care of her and you yeah. know that's a, that is that is an incredible song i love that song and yeah. i
5: didn't like it as a, as a kid too much because slower and all that but i love it now i mean i just love it and you said when you mentioned what you got also you know john rocker's uh, in the solo career of few and far between, I would dare say. I don't know, mm-hmm. when you get something like that. And that made me think of New York City, if I can yeah. mention that. One of my favorites. And I thought you'd think Scott, would that we were looking for a song off that album, which is like John talking about like not the himself kind of that maybe that comes closest, even though he does mention all the, the people yeah. he from the that he knows from New York City, David peel and all that you know but yep. that's the closest maybe that comes to something that's not just yeah, the, uh,
2: the most autobiographical but
5: autobiographical yeah
2: we learned about what he did on tuesday we don't really learn a lot about john lennon no yeah mm-hmm.
5: well and, I, and that's i always say with paul or anybody like when people i like defend wildlife or something i say yeah. well we got all those other john albums this is one sometime new York city that's different in that mm-hmm. regard mm-hmm. you know so you can,
2: yeah, I look at
4: me. I look at New York City as a sequel to Battle of John and Yoko in a way.
3: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
2: That's, that's right. that's yeah. Interesting yeah. thought. Yeah. Yeah. And, and here's something I don't want to overlook either. I'm not a fan of sometime in New York City, but the production is killer. Just yeah, listen like to the drums on Sunday, Bloody Sunday. I mean, when they kick mm-hmm. in, it's like, wow, that sounds great. Yeah. So it's a very good sounding album of pretty mediocre songs.
3: Yep. <laughs> there you go. Talking
2: about the drums,
6: Scott, like. they uh, brought Keltner in to keep the beat. Yep. So that's why. So it was Elephant's Memory except for Keltner and he was there to
2: kind of do all the timekeeping. And all, so is that him on Sunday, Bloody Sunday? Mm-hmm. That's why I like it so much. <laughs> there you
3: go. Mystery solved. <laughs> solved. I oh, think there with
1: go. Sometime in New York City it wasn't just that that John was writing political songs. I think he wanted to reflect what was going on in the news. It's like a newspaper
2: yeah. is what's yeah. The yeah. Time, well, at the time. Yeah. Oh, yeah. no, and so, that's what he was he talking was,
3: about in that quote. He was he was sort of being a journalist. Yeah. yeah. Right.
2: Um, right. Exactly. But I mean, I make the point um, in Leninology that I mean it was delayed because of the publishing and all kinds of different reasons. And by the time that album came out,
0: yeah. not
2: a single song was new. Angela mm. had been out of prison for six months the uh attic so riots were 10 months ago i mean it was yesterday's news and so yeah that, that idea of singing the news really backfired in a very bad way
0: hmm.
2: i mean i guess we still have the irish problem but uh mm-hmm. <laughs> right. didn't age well right hmm. angela didn't age well yeah uh, don't get me
3: started on that one so yeah <laughs> yeah right that's right so, uh, yeah, so I think overall, it, it's, this is a fascinating period to look at. And, okay. you know, and I think it did, as obviously it was a rough period for John in many ways. I think we can all agree on that. But I, I think it was still a productive period. And I think it did, you know, I think it did still, you know, it was still a creative period for him in many ways. Uh, maybe not in others but i think it did um you know politi- uh, politically productively it, it definitely uh you know it enhances producing skills and you know hone them i think it um and he, he still you know created some great great material um mm. is there uh, is there anything else that uh we'd like to anyone like to say to wrap up this this uh era um in uh, in his life any final thoughts
1: I'd like to say one thing about um Ringo with the Goodnight Vienna album, and I understand what you were saying, Scott, about you know the there being this like a year and a half when John didn't write all that much. And um you know, it you can't compare songwriting to everything else that you do in the studio, but in addition to writing Goodnight Vienna, John was the reason why Ringo recorded Only You,
0: mm-hmm. and it
1: was that arrangement of only you. There are people who make a living out of advising people what songs to cover or songs to record. And John was the right person at that moment because that song became a huge hit for Ringo. Mm The fact that John also played on it and Harry Nilsson was on it. So I think John deserves some credit for that. So um, yeah, in addition to writing Goodnight Vienna.
2: The one thing, I mean, I, I have zero answer for this, but... You have to wonder what role New York City plays in the whole thing. Um, Los, I mean, John had a history of running away to Los Angeles to solve his problems, right? I mean, the Beatles break up, boom, he spends the summer in Los Angeles. Um, the immigration Kyoko thing is not going well. Summer of 72, boom, they go to California. Early 73, John and Yoko spend a month in California. You know, the California was a place where he went a lot to get away from things. So it makes sense that in September of 73, he did go there. But when you're surrounded by musicians and the music scene and the bar scene and people like Harry Nielsen and Mickey Dolan's and Ringo Starr, that's a very different scene than what was going on in New York. And so you have to wonder, you know, I made the case that he didn't do anything creatively while he was in los angeles and in fact he couldn't even finish pussycats in los angeles he had to move the whole operation to new york and once he did that's when walls and bridges came out that's when Goodnight vienna came out that's when he connected with elton john again and david bowie all of that stuff was in new york except for elton john which was in colorado but you have to wonder how much was that state of mind for him by being on the east coast as opposed to the west coast I have no idea, but it just makes me wonder. Not much got done in California. A lot got done in New York. Mm. That's good point. Good point. Good. You
1: know, May Pang has made it a point to say that all people think about when they hear Lost Weekend is that John got drunk all the time. But if you add mind games and walls and bridges into the equation, <laughs> it's a lot of music along mm-hmm. with rock and roll. And on all these other side projects, Elton John, David Bowie, and Ringo. Yeah. So I think it was a really productive time for him. So I still want to ask the question between uh, Chip and Scott, what they truly consider to be the Lost Weekend period. Because to me, it always means the period when John was separated from Yoko. But um, correct me about this. When he started Mind Games in New York,
2: he was still with Yoko. So it wasn't. They were still living in the Dakota. Yoko's session, like, finished on a Friday with those musicians, and John started on Saturday with the exact same musicians in the exact Uh same studio. I mean, they literally butted up right next to each other. So, yeah. In fact, there's a picture of them actually walking to the studios. It's John, Yoko, and May. Mm. So
1: then, if you only think of the lost weekend as when John and Yoko were separated, you really can't include mind games then. Here's a fact that that's probably not well known yet
6: because Londonology volume two, isn't out yet, <laughs> but, uh, Yoko, uh, co-produced the majority of the bed tracks on mind games. She was in the studio. Wow. And she's evident on a lot of the session tapes. So, um, I, I don't know if that helps answer anything, Ken, but sure it does. <laughs>
2: wow! <laughs> it Wow, exclusive, folks. To answer your question, I mean, I would argue that the lost weekend kind of mentally began with the immigration and Kyoko stuff in 72 and truly kicked off in delightful fashion on election night 1972. And I don't want to get into the salacious details. yeah. Yeah, that was that was the night where their relationship was maybe not broken, but extraordinarily damaged. And I kind of feel 1973 is John's apologia. (laughs) The entire year was him trying to make it up to Yoko, you know, going to the feminist conference with her and really pushing approximately infinite universe and everything he could to get over that one bad night. And I think that's where the lost weekend began, you know, a good year. Before he took off to Los Angeles, but what yeah. did John think?
0: <laughs> mm-hmm, yeah, right. <laughs> and how and how
2: glib is it though? You know, to just say you know to take the title of a movie and say, "Yep, yeah, that was that period in my life." Mm-hmm. You know, that seems a, a little glib. You know, for somebody as smart as him, mm-hmm. but
6: everybody picked up on that, right? Mm-hmm. And is
2: run with it, right? Yeah,
1: yeah. The question really should be. Is the last weekend when John and Yoko's relationship really started to struggle, or is it really when John was separated from Yoko?
5: Yeah, well, John said, "With the separation, mm-hmm. <laughs> the mm-hmm. I'm going to stick with that because it's not for us to." Yeah, we can have fun well, speculating as a side yeah. thing. Yeah, but we're
2: doing actually. We're doing that's what we're doing. Right? No. Yeah, yeah, I mean, you well, can physically well, say until he and May got on that plane in September of 1973. That's when it began. That yeah. day, that the the night they went out to see. Um, Who was it, Neil Young, together their first night in L.A.? Mm -hmm. Yep. When they were at uh, the club seeing Neil Young, that's the beginning of the lost weekend. That's Mm -hmm. another way to look at it, for sure.
3: Mm
2: -hmm. He was out in a club with May and not Yoko.
3: Mm Yeah. But, uh, but yeah, but it was, it was definitely, uh, you know, a transformative period in, in John's life, no matter how you look at it, and, uh, and definitely musically. I mean, as I said, some of the music, you know, the subjects you know, can be found in what would become double fantasy, for, uh, yep. for sure.
2: Well, if anything, it's sealed for at least another five years that he desperately wanted to be with Yoko. Yeah, and that they were going to give it another chance.
3: Yeah. So
2: who knows what would have happened after 1980? Mm-hmm. But that's the one thing that got that came out of the Lost Weekend was they said, "Nope, we need each other. We're going to do this again." Exactly. And you know, when you see that they spent the summers of you know 77, 78, and 79 in Japan,
0: mm-hmm. you know,
2: that's just really a nice bonding moment, just getting together and seeing her family and seeing her home country, and it changed things so much in their relationship
3: certainly did certainly did well this has been a a fascinating conversation and and a nice deep dive in into this period that so deep (laughs) yeah yeah. (laughs) Uh, and uh you know but really into a period that i think you know i think is misunderstood and and you know there's been a lot of myths about it as, as you guys were referring to and uh and i think you know you know, more attention needs to be paid to, to, you know, the music that came out of it and, and, uh, uh, and, and how his artistry evolved uh, during, during this period. So, uh, so, um, you know thank you guys so much for joining us and and uh lending your your expertise uh to this discussion yeah, I excellent of, thank
0: you can't think yeah. of two Thanks, two
3: better people uh, scott and chip to, to uh <laughs> take you. part in this uh absolutely yeah, uh so much tell fun. Us, Thanks for having us. oh you're welcome Ooh. tell us a bit uh about leninology the the book that's out now and uh tell us about the book that's that's coming up
6: well i think scott kind of our our perhaps it was you that summarized in the beginning that it was their personal and professional relationship from 1968 to 1980 was, is the, is the basis of, of Leninology volume one. It's a, it's a day by day. Uh, and it's written without the value of foresight. So it unfolds as the events are, are happening. Um, the, the subsequent volumes are, uh, I think the next one's going to be with the uh, all of the session work, all of the studio albums. And then possibly the third would deal with the home recordings and the whole composing process.
2: Wow. wow. Cool. So, well, for those who don't so, know, you know, Chip was the co-author of Eight Arms to Hold You, which is yeah. still the ultimate reference book on the solo years.
0: Yes, it is. And
2: he and I had gotten to know each other over the years a little bit. And out of the blue, out the blue, He just, he came to me and said, you know, I've got a ton of information about John Lennon. How about, there it is. (laughs) Why don't, why don't you and I write the ultimate John Lennon book? And I was like, yeah, sure. And he and I both thought it was, you know, everything was on the internet. You know, we've got all this information already. It's going to just be two years, maybe max. (laughs) How long did it take, Chip? 15 years? Yep. Yep. And it's already Uh, eight
6: years old.
2: And it's already eight years old. Yeah, Chip's favorite line that, I, that he said was, we're 15 years into a two-year project. <laughs> and, you know, we had to make the monumental decision. It was just going to be about John. And we got into it about six months. And we realized you cannot tell his story without also telling Yoko's. So we had yes, to pull her into it as well. So it's equally about John as it is Yoko. I think that was a great decision as well. Yeah, I mean, you know, when he spends six months working on approximately infinite universe, how do you just delete that out of his story? You can't, right? You can't. I mean, listen, when during that separation, right, he's thinking about Yoko,
4: right? I mean, he's not thinking about Cynthia anymore, right? You know, he's, <laughs> you know, that you know, that part's done. I mean, he, he, I get not it. I mean, that, yeah, <laughs> that was very. That was a very wise decision to include Yoko in the book. Yeah,
0: yep. thank nice. you.
3: Absolutely. And where can people uh reach you guys and and purchase uh the book that's out now?
6: There you go. <laughs> there we go. Still here. Yeah. Dust it off and uh,
3: and I'll put this books, in the comments uh,
6: too. Eight arms to hold you is going to be twenty-four this year. Wow. And uh it went out of print rather quickly. And Mark and I, Mark Easter and I who co-authored the book. Decided to uh, update it a few years ago and publish it as an ebook so it was mm-hmm. still available. So you can get the ebook of Eight Arms here at Leninology.com as well as the uh, hard copies of the Leninology Strange Days Indeed Volume 1 book.
2: If you haven't looked at the electronic version of Eight Arms to Hold You, and I don't have a horse in this race, I'm just a fan of this book, mm-hmm. definitely get the electronic version. Chip and Mark updated it dramatically. It is a very, very different book than the print copy with so much more information. Um, I love their perspective. They said, what if we wrote this book in the year 2000 knowing what we know now? So there's no Ringo to 2018 concerts right it still ends in 2000 but it's got way more information for those years than it ever had before so the electronic version is well worth it and my favorite thing about linenology.com you can get the first three chapters for free on the website so Mm, go check it out go go read through 1968 and see if that's what you're into
3: very nice all right okay thank you both all right, uh, before we get to what each of us are doing, let me just quickly tell you that uh, you can reach us at talkmoretalk at talkmoresolotalk at gmail.com. Uh, somebody in the comments uh, actually already mentioned that he had a, a, an idea for us for a future show. So just email us right there and uh, let us know uh, what, uh, what you have in mind. And who knows, you may see an idea of yours on a future show. And of course, we always welcome feedback. Um, and, uh, don't forget to subscribe to this channel right here and, uh, and, you know, smash that like button as the kids say, and, uh, and thank you all as always for your support of our show. We couldn't do this without you. And, uh, of course you can find us on any, virtually any podcasting platform you can think of. You can find us on Facebook, uh, just like our page there, and you'll be notified of any Uh, future uh, episodes. You can find us at talkmoretalk.com and on Twitter X, whatever the heck it's being called these days at uh, talkmoretalk1, the number one. Um, And I think that's everywhere you can find us. So uh, Tom, why don't you tell uh, folks what you're up to? Great, thank
4: you. Uh, well, two legs. Um, we we last week we just featured our our friend Owen Ling uh, with uh, part two of our look at uh, the Paul and George relationship throughout the solo years. Um, as you know, Owen Ling just contributed to uh, this magazine right here. He wrote about uh, the album New, and um, be on the lookout in the future because we're gonna also feature some of the other contributors that. Uh, um, wrote um, about the albums in this uh, magazine as well. This is a fantastic magazine that you can get at Barnes & Nobles now, um, so check it out. Um, we're also going to... Um you know, talk about the, uh, the, the 50th anniversary of the band on the run, especially those underdubbed, um, underdubbed, uh, the part portion of the, uh, the two disc sets. And, uh, we're going to both be at the fest, uh, for, for Beatles fans. So we are looking forward to, uh, to that, seeing all of you. And then as you guys all know that we're going to be there uh, as well, um, being myself, Joe, Ken and, and kid, you know, hopefully, you know, we wish Scott and Chip would, would be there, but I don't yeah. think uh, they're going to, uh, participates uh in the fest but uh we're looking forward to seeing everybody there and we've got a lot planned um for the future so uh check out two legs a paul mccartney podcast on youtube and then we're also on every audio platform uh you can find uh wherever you like to listen to podcasts we'll be there
3: all right always busy busy and yes we hope we'll have information very soon on panels Uh, Please check our Facebook pages and all for details. As soon as we have them, we'll get them to you. Uh, Joe, how about you? What are you up to?
5: My YouTube channel is called Mean Mr. Mayo. And uh, some of the things I've been talking about lately, I did a Meet the Beatles 60th anniversary presentation. I talked about uh, Beatles at the BBC Vinyl. Uh, collection uh, did a melody uh, tribute short little video on that and uh, record store reality where i uh, do my soap opera from the record store that i frequent that people seem to like and some of the new things that are on the mean mr mayo channel no rants for a while it's been at least at least a couple of weeks i think but i'll find something to rant about
3: i know you will <laughs> all right and last but definitely not least ken what uh, what about you
1: well um after some kind of a hiatus on my youtube channel things have been picking up in the last few weeks um i just did my first ultimate beatles trivia show in a few months and i had john borak on there i mentioned before he's a uh, contributing writer and editor for goldmine magazine also the author of the beatles 100 100 pivotal moments in Beatle history also doug wolfberg was one of the contestants on the show He's the author of this new book called Fab But True. Remarkable stories revealed of things that happened in Beatle history. Also, Rick Glover from Fans on the Run. The three of them were the contestants on the latest show. You can check that out and find out who won. And it tests your knowledge on all things Beatles, group and solo, on my uh, YouTube channel, Ken Michaels Radio. You mentioned Owen Lynn. Well, he's in two of my newest shows. We did an interview recently that was uh, an overview of Paul McCartney's solo career. And also I did a show because um, Owen had written an article a couple of years ago uh, saying the Tug of War was Paul McCartney's best solo album. So I thought we'd have a debate about that. And we had Owen on the show, along with Beatley Tone, who has his own YouTube channel, has been a guest on uh, Two Legs. They do a feature on Two Legs. Stuck inside these four walls. Um, And Dino Vichera, who has his own Facebook channel called Coming Up the World of Paul McCartney. It's all about Paul on his Facebook channel. And he's got a YouTube channel as well. So the three of them and I discussed whether or not Tug of War is Paul's best album and what we all feel, if not, represents Paul's best. And then I also did an interview with music legend Tony Orlando. Tony is about to uh, do his very last tour and the very last show will be right near me in Connecticut at Mohegan Sun on March the 22nd. So we talked about his entire career, um, his early years uh, working uh, you know, in the Brill Building area, knowing a lot of the great songwriting teams of that time and songwriters, and also his hits with Don in the 70s especially. And we did some Beatle Talk as well um it actually mentions in uh, live at the bbc volume two that the beatles recording of beautiful oh no that's on the first one the first live at the bbc beautiful dreamer the beatles arrangement of beautiful dreamer was based on tony orlando's recording of the song okay. so we talked about that a little bit but if you're a fan of tony this is his last tour and uh will be playing at Mohegan Sun on March the 22nd. I should be going to that show. Also on my uh, website, KenMichaelsRadio.com, my Beatles trivia, which is every two weeks at the moment, you can win the brand new weekling CD called Raspberry Park. Starting uh, next week, I'll be giving away Steve Matteo's new book, Act Naturally, where he covers all five Beatle movies. And uh, again, that's at KenMichaelsRadio.com. Go to the Beatles trivia and games page. Uh, For those of you that want to hear my syndicated Beatles radio show called Every Little Thing, the easiest way to listen is to go to WFDU's channel, uh, their website actually, wfdu.fm, and they keep two of my shows in their archives, the most recent ones that have aired on the radio station. So if you go to wfdu.fm, click on the archives page, you can listen to my uh, one-hour syndicated Beatles show with Beatles solo. Beatles related music themes it's all packed into one hour and um, finally things we said today has been on hiatus because of Alan Cozen working on the McCartney legacy volume two if you want a little update he told me he's finished writing it but now he's got yep. all the editing to do. Yes. So um, that's why we haven't done a show in the new you year. You hear that, Mark? Lewis, come on, let's go.
0: <laughs>
1: <laughs> Talked to Adrian the like other day. What, Mark's book will come out after the McCartney yeah. Legacy. I said, yeah. The next book from Mark. Um, but yeah, we should be doing a show soon, probably after the fest. Yeah. I know they're working on getting a, a panel together. Hopefully... For things we said today, a panel for us uh combined with two legs. Yep, yep. We'll see what happens. Yep, We're yep. probably not gonna know till
3: the last minute. <laughs> <Like before>. <laughs>
1: exactly. <laughs> um, but we'll let you guys know, like Kit said on our Facebook page, and we'll spread yep. the word around.
3: Yes, absolutely. Thank you, Ken. Uh just a couple of quick things for me. Uh, the latest episode of uh Toppermost the Poppermost is out. We are uh, talking about the charts, the UK charts in January 1964. Next up, very soon will be the US charts in January 1964. Yes, Beatlemania is finally arriving ah. in the States. And uh, now our work is really cut out for us on the show. We're <laughs> going to be doing some long You're gonna shows. You're going to be busy. You're going to yep. be busy. That's right. But we're having a lot of fun doing it. So you can find uh, episodes on Toppermost or the Poppermost.net. Please check us out. And speaking of the Beatles, tomorrow, if you're watching this show or listening to it on January 29th, on January 30th, I'm going to be returning to the Monmouth uh, Tuesday Night Record Club. They are doing a special episode talking about Meet the Beatles, the 60th anniversary of its release. So I'm joining our good friend, Ken Womack, and we're going to be going through uh, uh, certain tracks of uh, the album. So uh, really looking forward uh, to uh, guesting on that. We're going to do another deep dive into that album. So I uh, hope to join you. The uh, I hope you'll join us. Rather, the link is on uh the two uh the two legs well i can put it on your two legs page if you'd like that's fine <laughs> Send me the link. i'll throw it on there <laughs> all right all right but it's on the talk more talk uh facebook page it's on my page so hope to see you there tomorrow so again this has been a wonderful show we may be back next week with a bonus show so <laughs> stay tuned stay tuned so we will let you know and we will let you know about our panels, hopefully at the fest. Uh, So just stay tuned to um, our Facebook page. And also this channel here, I'll put it up on the community tab. So so thank you once again for joining us. Um, And uh, Chip and Scott, thank you again. Uh, We really just had such a great time um, talking about the last weekend with you guys. So for uh, deep breath, Tom, Chip, Scott, (laughs) Joe and Ken this is Kit saying out the blue you came to us and we thank you very much (laughs) that's a good one good night everybody good night thank you